This is Audible. Audible.com presents the Senate Judiciary Committee's hearings on the nomination of Judge John Roberts to be Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. We invite you to visit Audible.com for the best downloadable audiobooks, as well as subscriptions and podcasts of top audio programs, including The New York Times, This American Life, The Wall Street Journal, and The New Yorker. There are several preliminary things I'd like to do and then get into a couple of questions that I wanted to ask you, Judge. Um, first, uh, to my colleagues, uh, with reference to some questions that attack policy positions of the Reagan administration uh, when you were uh, working there as a lawyer, uh, Judge Roberts, um, I tend to agree with you that it wouldn't be appropriate in your role as a current judge, uh, not to mention your service on the Supreme Court, uh, to be put in the position of defending policy positions of a previous administration. But to the extent my colleagues would like to engage in that debate, uh, probably not in this forum, I'd be happy to uh, accommodate them in, in, that, uh, in that matter. Uh, judge, as to your role, I, I appreciate, frankly, your candor and the clarity of what you have said. Uh, and you've said a great deal here. Obviously, you've drawn the line at uh, issues that may come before the court. But I think you have already uh, added to what we, what we already knew about your approach to judging. That's the key question here, and I appreciate uh, what you have added uh, to that. And I'll get into a little bit more of that in a moment. Uh, there are a couple of other items that I would like to clarify. Uh, our colleague Senator Biden uh, had engaged you in a colloquy regarding uh, some testimony given by Justice Ginsburg, and uh, he suggested that uh, Justice Ginsburg was asked about a specific case called Moore versus City of Cleveland, and that even though she had not written about that case, she volunteered to speak about it. Now, I think appropriately, you're not going to be a judge or umpire in this case as to whether she, she did or did not exceed the rule that she set down. That would be highly inappropriate. But I'd like to correct the record because that isn't what transpired. Uh, I won't read the entire transcript here, but would ask that the relevant portions be inserted in the record at the conclusion of my remarks. Um, but just to set, the, set the, uh, the background of it, she is testifying here in response to questions by Senator Hatch. And she said, I have said to this committee that the finest expression of that idea of individual autonomy and personhood and of the obligation of the state to leave people alone and to make basic decisions about their personal life. Justice Harlan's dissenting opinion in Poe versus Ullman. Senator Hatch said, right. And then Judge, uh, then Judge Ginsburg said, after Poe versus Ullman, I think the most eloquent statement of it, recognized, recognizing that it has difficulties, and it certainly does, is by Justice Powell in Moore versus City of East Cleveland, the case concerning the grandmother who wanted to live with her grandson. Those two cases, more than any others, Poe versus Ullman, which was the forerunner of Griswold case, and Moore versus City of East Cleveland, explain the concept far better than I can. And then there are other things that occur in the transcript. My point here is to note that she was not asked a specific question about this case. She volunteered it as one of two cases that had interesting language that expressed what she wanted to express with regard to the principle of individual autonomy and personhood. And, uh, and then further down in the transcript, um, she said, <clears throat> Senator Hatch, I agree with the Moore versus City of East Cleveland statement of, of Justice Powell. She goes on to, to describe how he reached it. And uh, later, Senator Hatch said, you mean with the position of Justice Powell? And Judge Ginsburg said, the position I have stated here 
You asked me how I justify saying that Roe has two underpinnings, the equal dignity of the woman idea and the personhood idea of individual autonomy and decision making. I point to those two decision opinions as supplying the essential underpinning. And then she said, in taking the position I have in all of my writings on this subject, I must associate myself with Justice Powell's statements. Otherwise, I could not have written what I did. The point is that this is a matter on which she had written extensively. And therefore, it is not the case, A, that she was asked about the case and was responding, but rather she brought the decision up, and B, she used it to illustrate what she had already written about extensively. So I think that will help to clarify the record. We'll put those portions of the transcript in the record, and uh, people can judge for themselves whether she uh, violated the rule which she has laid down, a rule which you subscribe to with respect to giving hints or ideas about how you might rule in future cases. Um, if you'd like to comment on any of that, you certainly may do so, but I doubt that you would want to uh, want to do so. One of the, uh, the, the, the other item that I would like to uh, insert in the record uh, is a memorandum, and this was uh, discussed, I believe, in Senator Biden's questioning uh, regarding a memorandum uh, dated February 12, 1982, regarding proposed intervention in Cantorino versus Wilson. And there were excerpts of that read uh, to which you were asked to respond. I'd like to have the entire memorandum inserted in the record at this point so that people can judge for themselves. Uh, objection, it will be made a part of the record. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Now, <clears throat> Uh, Judge Roberts, one of the uh, themes in the statements of my colleagues, uh, particularly on the other side of the aisle here, uh, yesterday was an expression of concern that you might, as a Supreme Court justice, undo what they describe as progress. This progress is represented for my colleagues by some of the court's decisions over recent decades and also by some legislation. My colleagues uh, expressed a heartfelt concern for preserving this progress. Another one of my Democratic colleagues endorsed a standard that a past member of this committee articulated for evaluating nominees. He asked, will the nominee expand or contract freedom? You recall that. Progress and freedom. I think any American would find it quite difficult to quibble with these two ideals. Uh, I do not think that you will find a member of the Senate uh, who would not express support for both progress and freedom and for many of the specific reforms that have been discussed. But as I thought about those two words last night and uh, about my colleagues' genuine concern for protecting what they understand as progress and freedom, I began to ask myself what those two words actually mean in the context of your nomination and the court's function more generally. Uh, when can we say that a particular decision by the Supreme Court expands or contracts progress or freedom? Actually, it's a little more complicated as you stop and think about it. For example, earlier this year, the Supreme Court issued a decision that allows the government to take one private individual's property to transfer that property to another private individual or entity. The court's majority held that such an action is consistent with the Constitution's public use requirement for takings of property, so long as there is some indirect benefit to the government, so long as, for example, the government expects to receive more tax revenues from the second party's use of the property. All of the most commonly described liberal members of the Supreme Court joined in the opinion. And I'm certain that the types of uh, involuntary government-engineered development projects that this decision allows will be viewed by many as progress. I'm not so sure. Is it really progress for one more politically influential private party 
to be able to use the government's power of eminent domain to take another less politically connected individual's property. That this is constitutional so long as the government anticipates increased tax revenues. I don't think this precedent represents an advance of either progress or freedom, in other words. In 1975, the court issued an important decision giving public school students the right to a hearing before they're suspended for disciplinary reasons. And the net effect of these decisions, as many school administrators and teachers have told me, has been to make school discipline much harder to implement and enforce. The procedures, for example, for removing a disruptive student from the classroom have become sufficiently involved that in many cases the school simply doesn't do it. The student remains in class and the other student's learning suffers. The writer David Frum has described this line of Supreme Court decisions as the bad king's magna carta. Well, many older teachers in particular can describe this, uh, the decline in school discipline and order that followed from these decisions. And so I'm not sure that uh, even though many would subscribe to the decision of the court that it really represents as an advance of freedom or progress especially if most children uh, are less free in their school environment. Uh, in 2003, the Supreme Court issued a decision that effectively prevents the government from outlawing child pornography, if that pornography is made with computer-generated images of children. The effect of these decisions is that a whole class of child pornography effectively can't be prohibited. Many of those who work in the criminal justice system, particularly those familiar with sex offenders and their mindset have expressed grave concern about the decision. They believe that the existence and availability of this kind of pornography can affect the behavior of certain sex offenders, that it sends them a message that their impulses are not shameful, but rather that they're shared by others and can be indulged. Again, I have no doubt that some view this decision as an advance of freedom. And again, I would disagree. A world where these types of sexual crimes occur with frequency is a world where parents are constantly afraid for their children, afraid to let them play outside alone, to go outside of their sight, even afraid to let them go on the Internet. And I don't see this as an advance of freedom. The conclusion uh, that I have, and there are other decisions we could point to as well, but what I've, what I've come to conclude is that it is not your function as a judge to decide how best to advance progress and freedom. That these are decisions that all Americans need to be involved in making, sometimes through their elected representatives. That the formula for creating progress and freedom in society is not predetermined, but rather both of these values require a balance of competing values. Society needs order and stability on the one hand, individual autonomy on the other that there are a few absolutes. So really the, the question here is how you view your role as a judge uh, with respect to this concept of advancing freedom and progress, uh, especially since you cannot, for the most part, choose what cases come before you to decide. What is your take on your role if you were to become the Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court in considering this notion of advancing freedom and progress through your decision-making? Well, uh, Senator, judges and justices um, do have a side in these disputes. Um, they need to be on the side of the Constitution. Um, and in most of these areas, what the Constitution provides is that these sorts of policy debates, which approach is better suited uh, to promote 
freedom or to promote progress are vested in the legislative branch. Uh, there are areas where the Constitution sets aside certain areas and the Bill of Rights and other protections of liberty and says that these areas are beyond the reach of the policy-making branches and judges and justices have the responsibility to enforce those provisions in the Constitution. But outside of that, judges and justices should not take sides uh, in these disputes. I think people on both sides need to know that if they go to the Supreme Court, uh, that they're going to be on a level playing field, uh, that the judge is going to interpret the law, that the judge is going to apply the Constitution uh, and not take sides in their dispute. Uh, that, that's what uh, this body is for in Congress uh, and in the state legislatures to resolve those types of policy disputes. And so long as the resolution is consistent with the Constitution, that's what the judges are there to ensure. And so long as they ensure that, uh, the framers' notion was that freedom and progress would be advanced by allowing those decisions to be made by the people's elected representatives. I, I appreciate that. You uh, said in response to another question, you, you used the, the, the phrase, as applied. Now, most of the lawyers appreciate what you meant by that, but I wonder if you could elucidate, particularly for those who are not uh, learned in the law, what the difference is between uh, dealing with a case an issue of constitutionality per se, uh, or in an as-applied context, and how it is possible, for example, in case number one, to uphold the constitution, uh, constitutionality of a law uh, on its face, for example, and yet in case number two, that comes down uh, a few years later, to declare that in that situation the statute is unconstitutional as it's applied to the facts of that case. How can that be? Well, the distinction is, is a basic one in constitutional law. If you have a facial challenge to a law, as we call it, uh, or a per se challenge might be another way to put it, uh, you're basically saying the law is unconstitutional without regard to the facts of the case, without regard to the record. Whatever the application might be, whoever the parties challenging it might be, there's something about the law so fundamentally flawed uh, that it's unconstitutional, however it's going to be applied. Um, uh, that's a fairly narrow category of, of cases. The other category is so-called as-applied challenge. You have a law that you know is not facially unconstitutional, uh, but it may be applied in an unconstitutional manner. Uh, an easy example, you have a normal statute that's perfectly uh, uh, constitutional. Uh, if it's applied in a discriminatory manner, uh, it may be unconstitutional as applied in that case. Uh, if it can be applied in a constitutional matter, you know, so long as the facts uh, are a certain way, and if the facts turn out in the record not to meet those requirements, then it can be unconstitutional as applied. And in those situations, you do need to know what the record is. You do need to know what the facts are, because the challenge might be this law may be fine for other cases, but when you apply it to this case, when you apply it to this record or these facts, then it's unconstitutional. So it's it, a, a statute that is constitutional on its face can always be applied in an unconstitutional way, and so you can't give a categorical determination that there's no way in which that statute could ever be unconstitutionally applied. And this is another reason why when, when you're asked, well, uh, would you agree that a certain decision uh, is is a good decision and should be maintained uh, as, as part of our jurisprudence and so on, um, in addition to not wanting to give a hint as to how you might rule on a case, 
to some extent it's impossible to say because you don't have the facts of the case before you and the facts of case A could cause you to render a different decision than the facts of case B. Well, that's right. And, and particular precedents obviously could be applied to variations on the uh, uh, fact situation that gave rise to that precedent. And sometimes those facts lead to a different result. Sometimes those facts don't. And they make, uh, you know, it makes sense to continue to apply it in, in a particular manner. But again, um, and I think most judges are of this view that uh, the, the facts are a critical part of uh, the resolution of any dispute. I, I know perhaps uh, uh, to non-lawyers this can cause frustration. Well, just you know, tell me one way or the other. But judges have got to be fair and, and, and uh, to make sure that they don't treat all cases as the same because the fact differences could make the, the difference between your ruling one way or another in a case. And every litigant probably feels that their case is a little bit unique. Judges need to, be, uh, need to think about that and, and certainly need to be willing to consider that this person's case might be unique and therefore it has to be looked at in a way different than a similar uh, but perhaps not identical case. Well, and of course that's a lot of uh, how the law develops uh, and as lawyers arguing in court, uh, a lot of what we used to, or I used to spend my time doing was saying, you know, this precedent doesn't apply. And the reason it doesn't apply is because these facts are different and so you should reach a different result. Or arguing that this precedent does apply even though these facts are different, the reasoning still covers that situation and then that leads to the next case and, and so on. And it's that sort of gradual development of the law that uh, uh, helps, helps shape the, uh, the rule of law. Now, you've seen that each one of us have, uh, have a couple of soap boxes that we like to mount uh, and uh, after uh, <coughs> about five minutes of our opinion, then we ask you a question. <laughs> I've got one of those for you, uh, something that's been bugging me. Uh, there's, there's been a lot of discussion about the uh, Supreme Court's reliance or, or even reference to uh, foreign law to determine the meaning of the United States Constitution. I just want to note a couple of the cases in which this was done recently. A case uh, this, this year, uh, Roper versus Simmons, in which the Supreme Court reversed a prior precedent and decided that it would be unconstitutional to execute a man who was 17 at the time that he brutally murdered a woman by throwing her off of a bridge. In deciding the case, the Supreme Court not only, in my view, uh, engaged in questionable analysis of American law, it spent perhaps 20% of its legal analysis discussing the laws of Great Britain, Saudi Arabia, Yemen, Iran, Pakistan, Nigeria, and China. The court claimed that we ought not to, quote, stand alone on this issue and that we should pay attention to what other nations do when we interpret our Constitution. And in 1999, Justice Breyer argued that the court should consider whether a long delay in executing a convicted murderer, a delay, by the way, caused by uh, his repeated and arguably frivolous uh, appeals, should be deemed cruel and unusual under the Eighth Amendment. And he relied on the legal opinions of courts in Zimbabwe, India, Jamaica, and Canada. The trend, if it is to become one, is greatly troubling to me and to many of my colleagues. Our Constitution was drafted by the nation's founders, ratified by the states, and amended repeatedly through our constitutional processes that involve both federal and state legislators. It's an American Constitution, not a European or an African or an Asian one. And its meaning, meaning uh, it seems to be, by definition, uh, cannot be determined by reference to foreign law. I, I also think it would uh, put us on a dangerous path by trying to pick and choose among those foreign laws that we liked or didn't like. For example, 
many nations have a weak protection for freedom to participate uh, in or practice one's religion. Iran and some other Middle Eastern nations come immediately to mind. But even a modern Western nation like France has placed restrictions on religious symbols in the public square. That would be highly unlikely to pass muster in U.S. courts. Should we look to France to tell us what the free exercise clause means, for example? Even nations that share our common law tradition, such as Great Britain, offer fewer civil liberty guarantees than we do, and the press has far less uh, freedom. Nations such as Canada have allowed their judges to craft a constitutional right uh, to homosexual marriage. There's a lot more to say on this subject, but I, I wanted to hear from you, so my question is, is this. What, if anything, uh, is the proper role of foreign law in U.S. Supreme Court decisions, and of course we're not talking about interpreting treaties or foreign contracts of that sort, but cases such as those that would involve interpretations of the U.S. Constitution? Well, I, I don't want to comment on uh, any particular case, but I, I think I can speak more generally about um, the approach. Um, I know Justices Scalia and Breyer uh, had a, a little debate about it themselves um, uh, here in town. It was very uh, illuminating uh, to get both of their views. Um, and I would say as a general matter um, that there are a couple of things that cause concern on my part. Um, about the use of foreign law as precedent. As you say, this isn't about interpreting treaties or foreign contracts, but as precedent on the uh, meaning of American law. Uh, the first has to do with democratic theory. Um, judicial decisions uh, in this country, judges, of course, are not accountable uh, to the people, but we are appointed through a process uh, that uh, allows for participation of the electorate. The president who nominates judges is obviously accountable to the people. Um, senators who confirm judges are accountable to the people. Um, and in that way, the role of the judge is consistent with the democratic theory. If we're relying on a decision from a German judge about what our Constitution means, no president accountable to the people appointed that judge, and no Senate accountable to the people confirmed that judge. And yet he's playing a role in shaping the law that binds the people in this country. I think that's uh, a concern that, that has to be addressed. Um, the other part of it that would concern me is that relying on foreign precedent doesn't confine judges. Uh, it doesn't limit their discretion the way relying on domestic precedent does. It, domestic precedent can, sh can confine and shape the discretion of the judges. Foreign law, you can find anything you want. If you don't find it in the decisions of France or Italy, it's in the decisions of Somalia or Japan or Indonesia or wherever. Uh, as somebody said in another context, looking at foreign law for support is like looking out over a crowd and picking out your friends. Um, you can find them. They're there. Um, and that actually expands the discretion of the judge. It allows the judge to incorporate his or her own personal preferences, cloak them with the authority of precedent because they're finding precedent in foreign law and use that to uh, determine the meaning of the Constitution. And I think that's a misuse of, uh, of precedent, not a correct use of precedent. I appreciate that. Uh, we have precious little time to... Um to discuss your, your personal career and, uh, and, and views. And I, I want to take just a couple of minutes to give you an opportunity to talk to us about a couple of things. Um, I, I see by the record that you've represented at least one uh, death row inmate on a, on a pro bono basis. 
and I'd, I'd love to hear just about how you took that case and, and how, well, how you dealt with that case. I don't, I don't want to overly uh, expand my role. It was consistent with what I've done in other cases. There was a particular uh, appellate issue that arose. The firm had been representing uh, the inmate for some time. Uh, one of the uh, senior leading partners at the firm, Barrett Prettyman, had been heavily involved in uh, his case for many years. A particular appellate issue came up and I was asked to get involved and I was, was happy to do that um, um, and assist in that, in that way. Again, it was kind of consistent with the general approach. It was in an area in which I was, uh, had some experience and, and was uh, happy to pitch in and help in that area. Uh, there's a story, it may be apocryphal, and if so, you can, you can disabuse us of it now, but uh, is it really true that uh, you were required to argue a case in, before the Supreme Court on two days' notice, and on that same day argued a case in the District of Columbia Circuit Court, or is that not a correct no, story? No, uh, that, that's the way it happened. I was scheduled to argue in the D.C. Circuit, and what happened is the Friday before the Monday argument, the clerk of the court called. We had a a new lawyer who was not yet a member of the Supreme Court bar in the office, and I think we considered it kind of a pro forma matter. We were moving his admission pro hoc vice so he could argue that day, and I think this was the Supreme Court's way of telling us that they didn't consider it a pro forma matter, so we got notified the Friday night before the Monday argument that they were not going to grant the pro hoc uh, motion, which is, of course, to let him argue the case even though he wasn't a member of the bar. Um, and it fell to me to pick up uh, that case to be prepared to argue it Monday morning. Then um, in the afternoon, I went and con uh, did the argument in the D.C. Circuit, uh, which had been previously scheduled. So How'd you do in the two cases? Well, I, uh, the court uh, got, got it right in each case. <laughs> <laughs> Enough said. Uh, you know, another thing that fascinated me uh, in, in clerking for two of the most incredible uh, jurists in in United States history, Judge Friendly and uh, and Justice Rehnquist, I I was going to ask you privately, but I I just have to ask you, and perhaps it'd be illuminating for folks, particularly uh, uh, law students. What did you learn from those two very erudite men? Well, I think uh, different things. Um, uh, you pick up different things. With Judge Friendly, it was um, he had such a total commitment to. Uh, excellence in his craft uh, at every stage of the process. Um, uh, just a total devotion to the rule of law and the confidence that if you just worked hard enough at it, uh, you'd come up with the right answers. And it was his devotion to the rule of law that he took the most pleasure in. He liked the fact that the uh, editorialists of the day couldn't decide whether he was a liberal or a conservative and he would be chastised for the same opinion depending on which paper had read it as either that conservative judge or that liberal judge uh, and because he wasn't adhering to a political ideology he was adhering to the rule of law and his devotion to it went to the extent and I know other of his clerks uh, ha had the same experience I do remember one time where he was signed the opinion and he kept writing it and writing it, um, uh, and he finally decided it was not right, and so he wrote a dissent, and he circulated the best majority he could come up with and said, I don't agree with it, here's my dissent, and of course, as you might imagine, the other two judges were persuaded by his dissent, and it came out that way, um, the sort of open-mindedness at every stage, the appreciation that it may not be the argument, it may not be the briefs, it may be down to the actual writing that reveals what he thinks uh, the right answer. The right answer is, and and also um, 
he did have an essential humility about him. He was uh, an absolute a genius. I mean, there's no doubt about it. Um, and certainly, whatever he was reviewing, the decision of an agency, the decision of this legislature, the notion of saying, you know, we defer to them because it's their responsibility. I think everybody would have agreed we'd have a better result if we just let him make the decision, uh, regardless of what it was. But he had the essential humility to appreciate that he was a judge and that this decision should be made by this agency or this decision by that legislature. Um, and I, and you read when you read his opinions, um, he doesn't just sort of, you know, knock the pieces off the board. He marches through in a very careful way to let you know exactly how he reached the decision why he went this way, if there was a difference among the precedents, why he chose this one, if there was a question of who has the responsibility, why he went that way. And it lays it all out in such a way that uh, you can understand the result. And to this day, lawyers will say when they get into an area of the law and they pick up one of his opinions, that you can look at it and it's, it's like having a guide to the whole, whole area of the law. Uh, with the uh, then Justice Rehnquist, who I, I clerked for the next uh, the next year. Um, I do remember uh, doing a draft uh, for him once and uh, coming in and uh, he thought that it was sort of the first topic sentence of each paragraph uh, was good and, and, and the rest of it could be junked and uh, you know I pushed back a little bit as I thought I hoped was appropriate and he said at that point he said well I'll tell you what why don't we put all this other stuff down in footnotes. We'll just keep sort of the first sentence of each paragraph, put the rest down in footnotes. And I figured, well, that was a fair compromise. So I go back and rework it and hand it to him with some pride. And he looks at it and he says, well, all right, now take out the footnotes. <laughs> uh, <which> <laughs> <laughs> um, so one thing I learned from him was, uh, I hope, uh, to try to write uh, crisply and efficiently, um, that a lot of extra stuff could be dispensed with. Um, and uh, just uh, so many people mentioned it uh, during his eulogies and at the sort of gathering of the clerks, his, his general approach to uh, the balance between work and, and, and family life. And uh, I think that was a very important lesson to learn at an early age. Judge, thank you. I think that tells us uh, not only something about you as a person, about your style of judging, but probably some good lessons for all of us. So thank you very much. Thank you, Senator Kyle. Senator Cole. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Judge Roberts, yesterday you described your role as a, as a judge as just an, um an umpire, as you called it, uh, uh, calling balls and strikes. That's an interesting analogy for me, as I have more than most some personal experience with umpires and referees. But as all of us with any involvement in sports knows, no two umpires or no two referees has the same strike zone uh, or call the same kind of a basketball game. And ball players and basketball players understand that depending upon who the umpire is and who the referee is, the game can be called entirely differently. When we look at real legal cases, uh, I wonder whether or not your, your analogy works. For example, in our private conversation, I asked you whether the words of the Constitution must always be interpreted in the same way as the authors originally intended. For example, the 14th Amendment, which guarantees equal protection of the laws to all citizens, was written at a time when schools were, in fact, segregated based on race. And yet in Brown v. Board of Education, the Equal Protection Clause was interpreted to find segregated schools unconstitutional. And you, of course, have endorsed that decision. No one disagrees with that conclusion today, but would a neutral umpire, as you described yourself yesterday, 
have decided back in 1954 to expand the words of the Constitution outside of the strike zone? Would a neutral umpire have overturned a 58-year-old Supreme Court precedent and, and gone against the understanding of the authors of the 14th Amendment and also the views of almost half of the state legislatures at that time in making the decision that they made? Well, Senator, I think the answer to your question is, is, is yes. Um, the uh, research into the original understanding of the drafters of the 14th Amendment has expanded and changed quite a bit, and I think a very good case can be made about their views. But more importantly, the issue was um, the, the institution of public education wasn't as established at the time as it is, was in 1954, the time of the crafting of the amendment. And, you know, the framers spoke in broad language, and whether they specifically addressed the question of public education or not isn't the limitation. Their, their intent was not limited to the particular problem. They chose broad language, and they should be held to their word. And I think it is perfectly consistent with an original understanding uh, to argue and to conclude that their original understanding meant that segregated schools were unconstitutional, not just in 1954, but at the time they enacted the amendment. Um, uh, yes. I think a strong case can be made there. And yes. what's, what was interesting about the, the Brown case, maybe it's my own perspective, but if you look at the arguments in that case, um, yes, John W. Davis arguing for the board was arguing on the basis of precedent and Plessy versus Ferguson, saying this is the established law. But so was Thurgood Marshall. He went in and he was arguing on the basis of more recent precedent, Sweat versus Painter, a more recent decision of the court about law school uh, separate but equal. And he was saying, you need to build on that more recent precedent in addressing this case. So um, uh, the, the, the court uh, was not changing the strike zone. That wasn't the way Marshall presented his argument, um, and it wasn't necessary for them to say, we're changing the rules of the game. What was necessary for them to do, and what Marshall was urging them to do, was to get it right uh, uh, when they had gotten it wrong in Plessy. Judge, back in 1954, clearly, the Supreme Court justices were willing to step outside the box, to break new ground, to do something that no one, no, no court, no legislature, no president had done before and strike out in an entirely new and positive direction for this country. They were not umpires simply calling balls and strikes. They were breaking new ground and they did so in the best interest of our country, didn't they? Well, of course it was a dramatic shift. Uh, and the overruling of Plessy versus Ferguson was exactly that. My point is simply that if you look at the Brown decision, it is more consistent with the 14th Amendment and the original understanding of the 14th Amendment than Plessy versus Ferguson. And it's based on the conclusion that the separation of the races in the schools was itself uh, a violation of equal protection. Um, I, 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 in other words, there's, it's not a departure from the 14th Amendment. It was sure. a departure from the... But it was question. groundbreaking. Certainly. One more uh, an, uh, observation, Judge, about your analogy of the judge as an umpire, neutral umpire. You're 50 years old, you bring great life experience to the bench, Judge, and don't you and all judges bring their own life experiences, their philosophies to the bench in deciding cases? Or would you have us believe, and if not, you can correct that. 
that judges merely operate as automatons. Not a automatons, no, Senator. That, I, I appreciate that, uh, that uh, judges don't. And of course, uh, we all bring our life experiences to the bench. But I will say this, that the ideal uh, in the American justice system uh, is epitomized by the fact uh, that judges, justices, do wear the black robes. And that is meant to symbolize the fact that they're not individuals promoting their own particular views, but they are supposed to be doing their best to interpret the law, to interpret the Constitution according to the rule of law, not their own preferences, not their own personal beliefs. That's the ideal. And isn't it also true that to a large extent the greatest men in our history, judicial, um, executive, legislative, have been men and women with both great minds and great hearts? Absolutely. Judge, in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina, we all saw that those who suffered the most were those who had not been able to take advantage of the great opportunities that our great country has to offer. As we found out, those without employment opportunities and educational opportunities simply did not have the means to escape the storm and the flooding. As you seek to become the head of the judicial branch, as you seek the position of Chief Justice of the United States of America, what role would you play in making right the wrongs re revealed by Katrina? And what role do you and the judicial branch play in making sure that we as a nation keep on moving forward towards providing equal opportunity to all Americans? The, the last part of your question, Senator, is, of course, really what's, what's carved on the uh, entrance to the Supreme Court, equal justice under law. Um, uh, that is the commitment physically embodied uh, in the Supreme Court, and it's a commitment in the Constitution. And I think the most important thing the Supreme Court can do and the judicial branch can do is to uphold the rule of law. That is the I tried to point this out in my statement yesterday. That is the key to making all the rights that are in the Constitution, all the rights that legislators may confer on citizens, that's the key to making them meaningful. The difference between our system and our Constitution and the, the Soviet Constitution that President Reagan used to talk about, it has wonderful rights in it too. They didn't mean a thing. Because there was not an independent Supreme Court, an independent judiciary to enforce those rights. Sure. We do have that, and that's the reason um, that we have been able to make progress in the area of rights um, and not had just empty paper promises. Yeah. So uh, to the extent you're talking about the injustices in society and the, dis and, uh, the discrimination in society, uh, the best thing the courts can do is enforce the rule of law and provide a level playing field for people to come in and vindicate their rights and enforce the rule of law. But in spite of all of our laws and all of our rules, we still s saw what happened down in New Orleans. And uh, the people who were left behind were people who had not had educational or employment opportunities. And the question I asked whether, was whether you, as a person who aspires to become the Chief Justice of the United States, sees a particular role, other than continuing the role that you observe we are following now, a particular role for improving our, our ability to respond to the needs of those people who live under those circumstances. Well, the, the courts are, of course, passive institutions. We 
hear cases that are brought before us. We don't go out and bring cases. Uh, we, don't, uh, we don't have the constitutional authority to execute the law. We don't have the constitutional authority to make the law. Our obligation is to decide the cases that are presented. Now, I'm confident, just in the nature of things, that there will be cases presented arising out of uh, that horrible disaster of all sorts. Um, and many of those will be federal cases, I'm sure. Others will be in the state courts. And uh, again, the obligation of the federal judiciary and the state judiciary is to make sure they provide a place where people can have their claims, uh, their litigation decided uh, fairly and efficiently according to the rule of law. Uh, that's the appropriate role for the judicial branch. All right. Uh, Judge. Do you believe that reasonable people can disagree on Roe v. Wade? Regardless of what you think of the decision, do you believe that there is an intellectually honest approach on the other side that is worth respecting? I certainly agree that reasonable people can disagree uh, uh, about that decision, yes. And you do obviously respect people on the other side of the issue? Yes. In Rusty Sullivan, as Deputy Solicitor General, you signed a brief in which you wrote, and I quote, the court's conclusions in Roe that there is a fundamental right to an abortion and that government has no compelling interest in protecting prenatal human life throughout pregnancy find no support in the text, structure, or history of the Constitution, unquote. So does this quote jibe with your statement that you understand that reasonable people can disagree? Well, I think so, Senator. The, the position that you're reading from there was the position of the administration. Um, I was one of nine lawyers on the brief uh, in that case. Uh, it was reflecting the position that had been advanced in four prior cases up to that point by the administration, um, and we were reiterating that position. This was before uh, the Supreme Court issued its decision in, in Casey. That was the view of the administration and the conclusion. I don't think there's anything in there that suggests we think or thought that anybody at that time who disagreed was unreasonable. Uh, that was our legal position. The other side was obviously presented in those cases. Well, you are saying here that there is no support in the text, structure, or history of the Constitution for that position. That's pretty flat out, pretty straight, pretty black and white. And, and in those cases, the, uh, the other side argued that there was. Um, and I don't think there's anything in either of those views that suggests you don't think uh, uh, that reasonable people can take different yes. positions on those questions. You have uh, today uh, suggested on numerous occasions that the things that you represented in writing uh, or in opinion back in the 80s and into the 90s working for the Reagan administration and working for the Attorney General and then finally working as Deputy Solicitor Attorney General were in, in many cases uh, um, the opinions of people for whom you worked, not necessarily your own. I assume therefore there are those opinions that you're prepared to disavow? Uh, my view in preparing all the memoranda that people have been talking about was as a staff lawyer. Um, I was promoting the views of the people for whom I worked. Um, and in some instances, those are consistent with personal views. In other instances, they may not be. In most instances, no one cared terribly much what my personal views were. Uh, they were to advance the views of the uh, administration for which I worked. Well, I appreciate that. And, and now that we're talking about you in an entirely different 
situation, of course. Um, our curiosity is which of those positions uh, were you supportive of or are you still supportive of and which would you disavow? Well, at this point, of course, we're now 23, 24 years later. Um, uh, I would not, uh, I would have to address each of those positions anew. I wouldn't try to transport myself back 24 years and say, what did you think 24 years ago? Um, and that would require me to look at and examine all those things. And of course, it's not how I would look at the issue if I were a judge. Uh, if I were a staff lawyer advancing a particular view, it's one thing. As a judge, I would want to confront the issue with an open mind to fully and fairly consider the briefs and arguments of all parties, uh, to consider the record. We've talked today about how important a record is in a particular case. Consider the law and the precedents. And of course, the law and the precedents have changed in many of these areas dramatically over the past 24 years. Um, I'd have to consider all those before reaching a conclusion in any of those particular areas. Sure. It would be helpful to many of us to know uh, which of those positions you took then no longer represent the position that you would take today. I think that would show a change as we grow and develop and experience life. That would be uh, illuminating and enlightening to many of us to hear what some of those positions you, you took then no longer are represented in your thought process today. Judge, as we all know, the Griswold Connecticut case guarantees that there is a fundamental right to privacy in the Constitution as it applies to contraception. Do you agree with that decision and that there is a fundamental right to privacy as it relates to contraception? In your opinion, is that set of law? I, I agree with the Griswold Court's conclusion that marital privacy extends to contraception and the availability of that. Uh, the court, since Griswold, has grounded the privacy right discussed in that case in the liberty interest protected under the Due Process Clause. Um, uh, that's the uh, approach that the court has taken in, in subsequent cases, rather than in the penumbras and emanations that were discussed in Justice Douglas's opinion. Um, and that view of the result uh, uh, is, I think, consistent with the subsequent development of the law, which is focused on the due process clause and liberty, rather than, than Justice Douglas's approach. Well, I'm delighted to hear you say that because, as you know, Many, many constitutional scholars believe that once you accept the reasoning of Griswold and find that the Constitution does contain a right to privacy and a right to contraception, that you've essentially accepted, scholars have said this, essentially accepted the basis for the court's reasoning and decision on Roe, that a woman has a constitutionally protected right to choose. These scholars reason that it follows logically that if a woman's right to privacy and her control of her body includes the right the contraception, then it also includes a woman's right to choose to terminate her pregnancy. Um, I'm not sure whether you wish to comment on that. I just wanted to point out to you something that I'm sure you're familiar with, is that there is, in constitutional thought, a follow from Griswold to Roe. Well, I feel comfortable commenting on Griswold and the result in Griswold, yes. because that does not appear to me to be an area that's going to come before the court again. It was surprising when it came before the court in 1965, I think, to many people. Um, the other area uh, uh, is an area that is, as to quote Justice Ginsburg from her hearings, live with business. There are cases that arise there, and so that's an area that I do not feel it appropriate for me sure. to comment on. I appreciate that. 
Judge, as we all know, you were originally nominated to replace the first woman ever to sit on the Supreme Court, Sandra Day O'Connor. There was a lot of speculation when she announced her retirement that the president might choose a woman to replace her. And she even suggested a little disappointment, not with you, but with the fact that a woman was not chosen. Had the president told you that the selection was down to you and an equally qualified woman for the post, but that he thought a woman was needed, would you have seen that as a reasonable conclusion on his part? Oh, I, I certainly think presidents have and will consider a broad range of issues and characteristics and qualifications in selecting uh, uh, their nominees, and that's certainly one for a president to consider. All things being equal um, in terms of qualifications, would you be pleased if the president chose a woman to replace Sandra Day O'Connor? The, the uh, upcoming vacancy? Yes. Um, I, I just wanted to make clear we weren't talking about this one. Uh, and, um, I, don't, I don't think it's appropriate for me to comment in any way about the, the president's future selections, other than to say that I'm happy with his past ones. You're not an automaton. <laughs> Judge Roberts, in an October 3rd, 1983 memo, you wrote that while you served as Associate White House Counsel for the Reagan administration, you expressed support for judicial term limits. You did specifically support the idea of limiting judicial terms to 15 years, and you said, I quote, to ensure that federal judges would not lose all touch with reality through decades of ivory tower existence, unquote. And do you still support, in theory, the idea of judicial term limits? You know, that would be one of those uh, memos that I no longer agree with, uh, Senator. Um, I, I, I didn't fully appreciate what was involved in the confirmation process when I, when I wrote that. I, I um, you know, the, the sentiments that were expressed there, um, I think, are certainly something that's worth discussing. Perhaps my basic point was when the fr framers established a system of life tenure, people didn't live as long as they do now. Um, um, you know, I do think there are concerns, though, um, uh, uh, that I may be a little more, bit more sensitive to now than I was then, and they have to do with sort of a definite cutoff point. Um, I'm not sure that's healthy for the institution of the judiciary, for people to know, for example, well, it's sort of like, as you say, term limits, that if we wait another year, this judge will be gone or that justice will be gone. I'm not sure any, uh, today, from where I sit, that that... Um, uh, is a good or healthy thing for the judiciary. So you do not support term limits anymore? Uh, I, I have to say I do not, because I do think that that restriction at the end, so litigants could look and, and shape their litigation in light of who they think the judges or justices might be, I think that's, uh, that's not a healthy development. I would note that if, if I'm remembering the memo correctly, um, I think it was a proposed constitutional amendment, uh, which I'm, I'm not sure, right? uh, but I, I think that's that obviously is a policy choice that the Constitution allows to be pursued through that process. All right. Judge, as you know, confronted with a legal problem, most American families, unlike wealthy and uh, families and very large businesses, lack the resources to hire the largest and most preeminent law firms uh, to do their bidding. And do you agree that for our nation's working people, securing civil justice is often rendered substantially much more difficult because it simply does cost too much? Do you have suggestions for addressing this issue? Do you worry that captivating national events such as the O.J. Simpson and Michael Jackson trials 
reinforce the view that in this country, justice can be for sale and available to those who can afford it? Uh, you know, I do think that the availability of legal services um, uh, is not as broad and widespread as it should be. Um, uh, there are so many things uh, in areas where I think lawyers could make a valuable contribution, uh, but it's, too, it's too expensive. Um, and it's, uh, uh, there are a number of responses that I think the bar should be taking. Uh, obviously, for those at the lowest end of the income scale, I think there's an obligation to provide pro bono legal services. Um, I think the big firms, little firms, medium firms, everybody needs to get involved in that. Um, there's not enough appreciation about how you can do that. For example, everybody thinks in terms of bringing a big case, litigation. You know, uh, lawyers who do estate work can provide extremely valuable pro bono services. Lawyers who do tax work can provide extremely valuable pro bono per, uh, services. Uh, uh, the whole range of, of services, corporate work. Uh, I know lawyers in my old firm would do uh, a lot of pro bono services, helping set up uh, nonprofit organizations, ensuring that they're complying with the law. Um, people need to be a little more creative in the ways in which uh, they can help. I regard that as an obligation uh, of the bar. And I do think that, um, uh, in fact, in many cases, the situation you get is, you know, people at the, the, the lowest end have access to pro bono services. People at the highest end can pay, and it's the people in the middle um, uh, who, who are left without legal services that could be extremely valuable. And I, I do think the, the, the bar needs to do more. Um, I think firms need to do more. Individual lawyers uh, need to do more. Judge Roberts, as you know, over the last two decades or so, there have been several bills introduced in Congress to strip the Supreme Court and all other federal courts uh, over, of their jurisdiction on, over many issues. These bills are generally sponsored by people who are unhappy with various court decisions, <coughs> including decisions on things like school prayer, remedies for school desegregation, and even a woman's right to choose. While you served in the Justice Department and on the White House Counsel's Office in the Reagan administration in the 1980s, you did state that you believed that bills stripping the court's jurisdiction were constitutionally permissible. Uh, do you still hold this view? Uh, do you think it's uh, the right way for us to go to allow our legislatures to strip your authority to review cases? Well, I, I, I know the memos to which you're referring make the point. Uh, answer your second question. I, I said that they were a bad idea. They were a bad policy. Um, I'd been asked earlier when I was um, back in 1981, I believe, uh, when I was working in the Attorney General's office, to present to him an affirmative case for the proposition that these proposals were constitutional. He was getting a, a, an opinion that they were unconstitutional. He had to make that decision for the department's position. He wanted me to argue the other side. Um, and I did. I prepared a memorandum presenting the best argument I could that these proposals were constitutional. Um, the two memos to which you refer in the White House where I suggested I thought they were um, suggest that my memo persuaded uh, me, if nobody else. Uh, the Attorney General adopted instead a the, the, the contrary position. Um, uh, and I think my views may have had something to do with the proximity to my own advocacy at the time. Uh, as I say, I did say they were a bad policy. Uh, the reason I thought they were a bad policy is because they lead to a situation where there's 
arguable inconsistency and disuniformity in federal law. If you don't have the Supreme Court with jurisdiction to uh, uh, address that, then you get different decisions, and that was a, that's bad, bad policy. Uh, if I were to look at the question today, to be honest with you, I don't know where I would come out. Um, I think one of the questions I would have is whether these concerns I had that I labeled as policy concerns might more appropriately be considered legal arguments. In other words, not a policy dispute, but a legal argument. That's the way the opinion of the Office of Legal Counsel that the Attorney General agreed with viewed it. They said these, uh, the fact of disuniformity and inconsistency is a legal argument against the constitutionality. It's not simply a bad policy decision. And I, I'm not sure where I would regard that determination today. Really? Are you saying that you're not sure where you would come out if you were faced with the decision to go along with or to fight legislative attempts to take away the court's authority? Oh, I don't think on the, on the question of legislative attempts, I think my view is the same now as it was 24 years ago, which is that these are, it's a bad idea. Uh, it's bad policy. I was talking about the other question about whether it's constitutional or not. And on that, of course, I don't think I should express a, a, a determinative view because, as you know, these proposals do come up um, and one may be enacted. And if that is the case, then I'd have to address that question uh, uh, on the court. could be on the court I'm on now or, or, or another court. In that case, or in this case, your heart might tell you that it's a bad idea. Your mind might tell you it's constitutional. Well, I don't know what my I mean, mind would tell me. Yes, uh, but I, I feel comfortable with the conclusion, as I was 24 years ago, that it's a it's a bad idea. They're All bad right. policy. Judge, as uh, since your nomination, literally, as you know, tens of thousands of pages of your writings as a young White House aide have been released and looked at very carefully. And some of these writings, you took very pointed positions, as we've discussed. Some political, some constitutional, and some that have raised eyebrows. I also think about myself when I was in my 20s and then when I was at the age which you are now and who I've become today and how I have changed, matured, um, and hopefully uh, grown as I've gotten older. I'm sure when you've had a chance to review some of your old work as part of this process that there are things that you wrote back then that make you cringe perhaps today? Are there positions you took back then as a 20-something lawyer that you would not take today? Can you give us a couple of examples of positions that you took then that as you have grown and developed uh, and as you are now sitting before us to be the Chief Justice of the United States of America, uh, that you are today not the person that you were back when you were 20-something? Well, um, we've talked about the term limits uh, for judges. Uh, the, uh, uh, more generally, um, as I look at uh, all of these documents and, and uh, the numbers, uh, somebody said 80,000 pages, it's, it's uh, uh, a little daunting. Uh, um, I don't know that there are particular issues. I mean, you have to remember, this is... 23, 22, 24 years ago. In many of these cases, uh, not only if I changed, the law has changed uh, dramatically in more than uh, two decades. Um, 
you know, I'm sure, and, and again, of the many that have been released, I, I will say that it's really only a handful that have attracted attention for one reason or another. And I do think if you look at the whole body of work, um, that I would hope people would leave that with a favorable uh, uh, impression. Um, certainly, there are many areas where it appears that I knew a lot more when I was 25 than I think I know now uh, when I'm 50. Um, I had a lot of different experiences in the intervening period uh, that give you valuable perspective. Um, uh, in that intervening period, for example, I left the government, went out in the private sector, uh, litigated a lot of cases against the government. Um, you do get a different view of things when you're on the other side. I think that's extremely valuable. Uh, I hope, as you su suggest, uh, uh, I've grown as a person uh, over that period as well. And that also gives you some perspective. And that type of a perspective might cause uh, somebody to moderate uh, their tone with respect to some issues and in some areas. And I'm sure that's the case. I certainly wouldn't write everything uh, today as I wrote it back then, but I don't think any of us would uh, do things or write things today as we did when we were 25 and had all the answers. I thank you, Judge Roberts. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator, thank you, Senator Cole. Senator DeWine. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Judge, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Judge, the good news is that uh, I represent the halfway point. <laughs> On the first round. The bad news is it's the first round. <laughs> <laughs> Judge, I want to ask you about one of your uh, more important, probably least understood, not by you, but least understood by the public's role, uh, if you are confirmed as the Chief Justice, and that is your job to appoint the members of the FISA court. Judge, as you know, uh, in 1978, Congress passed the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. Uh, this law, of course, set up the FISA court. Uh, as you well know, this is the court that our intelligence agents go to when they want to obtain wiretaps or search warrants against terrorists and foreign spies. Uh, very important court, court that may, meets in secret, uh, court that deals with the most important national security matters that we have really in our country, uh, but also a court that deals with our precious civil liberties. And Judge, because it's a court that meets in secret, uh, it doesn't have the public scrutiny, doesn't have the glare of publicity, uh, and quite candidly does not have much oversight. Um, so I would like to know, uh, besides what's in the statute, the statute uh, you know, sets out uh, that it would be your job to select the 11 judges who sit on the FISA court, the three judges who sit on the FISA court of review, there are certain guidelines in the statute, but besides that, um, I wonder if you could tell us what your criteria will be when you select these men, these women, who will serve on the court, and I wonder if you could give me your personal assurance that this will be something that will be very important to you, that you will take a hands-on approach, and that you will be very personally involved in, because really it is a question of the utmost national security. These are people who are going to make sometimes life and death decisions for our country. I appreciate that, Senator. And uh, if I am confirmed, um, that is something that I will address and take very seriously. I think, as in many areas, my first priority is going to be to listen, uh, to learn a little bit more about what's involved. 
Um, I'll be very candid. When I first learned about the FISA court, um, I was surprised. Uh, it's, it's not what we usually think of when we think of a court. Uh, we think of a place where we can go, we can watch, the lawyers argue, and it's uh, subject to the uh, glare of publicity, and the judges explain their decision to the public, and they can examine them. That's what we think of as a court. This is a very different and unusual institution. That, that was my first reaction. Um, I appreciate the reasons that it operates the way it does, but it does seem to me that the departures from the normal judicial model that are involved there put a premium on the individuals involved. I think the people who are selected for that tribunal have to be above reproach. There can't be any question that these are among the best judges that our system has, the fairest judges, the ones who are most sensitive to the different issues involved because they don't have uh, the oversight of the public being able to see what's going on. Uh, it, again, uh, to be perfectly honest, it is a very unusual situation and I do think it places a great premium on making sure that the best qualified people for that position are selected. Well, I appreciate your, your personal attention to that. I know how important you, you know it is, Judge, and I, I would just add one more comment that that court, as all courts do, but even more so, not only makes decisions, not only decides whether to issue the warrant or not, but it's the feedback that the Justice Department gets and that law enforcement agencies get that tells them what they can do and can't do. And that feedback is unbelievably important and it affects the intelligence operations in this country and just vitally, vitally important. Let me move, if I could, to something that's very important. Uh, to me and to all of us, and that is the First Amendment. Uh, certainly, Judge, there's no right in our Constitution uh, that is any more important than the freedom of speech. In a sense, it's the foundation of our, our democracy. It is the right upon which other rights are, are built. It's the right that guards our liberty and preserves our freedom. At the heart of the First Amendment is the idea that people have a right not only to speak their mind, but also to be heard. I'd like to talk to you a little bit about that and ask you a question. Uh, the case, I think, that most eloquently talks about the public square uh, where we engage in speech is Hague versus C CIO, 1939 case, which you're well familiar with. I want to quote it very briefly. Uh, wherever the title of streets and parks may rest, they have immemorially been held in trust for the use of the public and time out of mind have been used for purposes of assembly, communicating thoughts between citizens and discussing public questions. Such use of the streets and public places has from ancient times been a part of the privileges, immunities, rights, and liberties of citizens." End of quote. Judge, I, I want to be honest with you and, and say that as of late, I feel that we're seeing a disturbing trend when it comes to speech in the public arena. I want to give you some examples. Uh, in a recent case, a Wisconsin woman was kicked off a city bus. And this is what she was kicked off a city bus for doing. She was trying to distribute a book containing Bible stories to individuals sitting next to her. 
Another case that's repeated time and time again across this country, and has been for many years, in towns and cities, villages across the country. Individuals are prohibited from placing political signs, and it could be not just for candidates, it could be for a school levy, against a school levy, on their own property, on their own property, except during specified times and specified ways. Government tells them so many days before the election, you can't put that up there until so many days before the election. Not just for candidates, but for for uh, bond issues, whatever the issue that they want to talk about through their own political speech on their own property. Another example, uh, in many public, uh, uh, people who wish to exercise free speech in many public places, uh, these individuals are forced uh, into so-called free speech zones, which many times are far away from the event that they wish to uh, protest about so far away that they can't ever be seen or ever be heard, out of sight. Again, we go back to the issue of you have to be heard. In one recent case, the New York City Housing Authority refused to let a woman conduct Bible studies in the community center of a housing project, even though the community center was used for a host of activities, even weddings. I must say, in that case, she actually won the case. Um, so I'm concerned when I see these restrictions I think at the core of the First Amendment is the idea that individuals should be able to speak and be heard in public places. Now, Judge, I know you can't tell us how you'll decide any particular case. I'm not asking you to do that. But it is important uh, to me that you uh, talk to us a little bit about how you will evaluate these cases involving the right to speak in public places. Public places such as buses, metro stations, uh, city sidewalks, public parks. Uh, and tell us, if you could, Judge, what factors will you consider when deciding restrictions on speech on speech in the public square as we traditionally know it? And what is proper under the First Amendment and which ones are not? What tools will you use to decide that? Well, uh, again, of course, without commenting on any of the particular hypotheticals right. or actual I'm not cases. Asking. They're, all, they're all real cases, but I don't want you to, I don't. I don't want you to talk about that. I, I do think, though, as first as a general matter, and then to get into the law, that it is important um, that people keep a basic principle in mind when they're addressing these types of concerns. And um, uh, it's not a provision in the Constitution, it's not a provision in a law, but it's a, a basic uh, American approach uh, that I think is important, and that's uh, captured in the expression, uh, you know, it's, it's a free country. Um, and when you're talking about what people can say, what people can, signs they can put up, what they can do, um, I, I think people as a general matter need to appreciate that it's, it's a free country and it's a wonderful thing that people uh, can say things uh, in the public that you may not agree with uh, because you, of course, have, uh, have the same right. Now, the particular mode of analysis that the Supreme Court uses in addressing these types of public speech issues um, is, is to some extent unsettled. Uh, public forum doctrine, uh, as it's called uh, for many years, you tried to characterize an, uh, an issue as, is, is this a public forum? Is it a quasi-public forum? Is it a private forum? And the different, the definition uh, sort of carried with it the conclusion about what could be allowed. And many of the justices thought that the reasoning was awfully circular. 
Uh, I remember um, years ago I argued one of the cases in the Supreme Court about post office and what could be done in a, in a post office area and whether the restriction of that area to postal business meant they could exclude people who wanted to engage in political speech. And I remember thinking at the time that the, the, the precedents were very unsettled and I'm not sure that the court has made much progress since then. But you do try to focus a little bit on whether you're dealing with a public forum, one, one that has traditionally been open to expression, and if it has, then any restrictions on expression are going to be subject to a very exacting uh, standard before they'll be upheld. If it's a more limited public forum, it's only been open for certain types of speech, or the nature of the uh, forum requires there to be a restriction, that was the government's argument in the post office case I, I litigated, uh, then it's a, it's a less demanding standard in those situations. Yeah, let me just follow up with that with, with, with a short question, if you could give me a short, just a re reaction to this, if I could. Um, do you think the First Amendment is flexible enough uh, in the year 2005 to account for what I believe, at least, is the shrinking public square? I know we have the internet, we have TV, we have radio, a lot of things that we didn't have when our, our founders uh, wrote the Constitution. But I think there is a shrinking public square. What do I mean by this? Someone who wants to run for school board today, someone who wants to support a school levy, oppose a school levy, when you and I were growing up, you're younger than I am, but when we were growing up uh, in the Midwest, you could go downtown, if you supported a school levy, let's say, you could go downtown and pass out literature in, in front of the hardware store or the grocery store. And that was a, a public place because it was a sidewalk. And you knew everybody in town was probably going to go by there. And if you lived in a city, there were, there were communities in the city where you could do the same thing. Today, most people, we just don't live that way. Most people don't. Some do, but most don't. Today, people get in their car, and if they go to the grocery store, they go to a strip mall, and they go to a grocery store that is surrounded all by private property, and the people who own that strip mall say you can't come on, usually, usually say you can't come on and distribute any literature of any kind on this facility. And basically, they're upheld in that right because it's private property. Or they go to, they go buy their uh, clothes or every everything else, their hardware, they go in, in, a, in a big mall. And that mall clearly is a Supreme Court case right on point uh, that says that they can be excluded. So the, the, the traditional public forum as we know it, it is really shrunk. Does the court take that into consideration when they look at the precedents, they look at the all the decisions that have been made. How, how does that, without deciding any case or talking about any specifics, well, I do know the world we live in today. Well, uh, I appreciate the point, and I, I do know that uh, even the analysis in this particular area, one of the factors that the court uh, considers is the availability of alternative uh, uh, avenues for expression, and a, con a cons concern if they're cutting off a particular mode of expression, a particular avenue, uh, are there alternatives available? And I think that's a very important consideration. I think you're, you're quite right that this is one of those areas in which uh, technology is going to figure in a very prominent way. Um, and the question of whether this type of analysis that grew up when you're talking about a public square or a town town hall type thing applies in the internet situation uh, and whether there's changes that do need to be made in the analysis. 
Let me, let me talk, uh, since you're talking about the Internet, let me turn to a disturbing trend in regard to the Internet. Uh, and that has, quite frankly, to do with pornography. Uh, we have passed several bills in Congress, um, the Communications Decency Act to protect our children. Uh, Supreme Court struck it down. I'm not going to ask you a comment about that. Uh, a few years later, we passed the Child Online, Online Protection Act, again with the, inter with the intent to protect our children. Again, the court struck it down. Unlike the traditional public square, the Internet has really become a place for the distribution of some, I find, very troubling material, uh, and that is pornography. And I guess what bothers me about these cases is they, they fail to account for something that, to me at least, is very relatively simple. And that is that at the core of the First Amendment is, to me at least, the protection of political speech, speech on matters of public concern I've talked about before. But it seems to me that pornography is different, um, particularly pornography that can ch children can easily access. Uh, it seems to me that that should be treated differently than political speech. Um, famous case, Young versus American Mini Theaters. Uh, in that case, the court upheld zoning regulations on adult theaters. Justice Stevens, hardly a, a, a right-winger, had this to say, and I quote, even though we recognize that the First Amendment will not tolerate the total suppression of erotic materials that have, have some arguably artistic value, it is manifest that society's interest in protecting this type of expression is of a wholly different and lesser magnitude than the interest in untrammeled political debate. Few of us would march our sons and daughters off to war to preserve the citizens' right to see, quote, specified sexual activities, end of quote, exhibited in the theaters of our choice, end of quote. And Judge, in light of that quotation, here are my questions. Are there, are there or should there be different levels of speech under the First Amendment? Should pornography, for instance, be treated with less regard than Mark Twain's uh, Huck Finn, and how would you have confirmed the Supreme Court decide what protection, if any, certain kinds of expression are entitled to under the First Amendment? Well, Senator, it's my understanding under the Supreme Court's doctrine that uh, pornographic expression is uh, not protected to the same extent, at least, as, as political and core speech. And the difficulty that the court has addressed in these different areas, of course, is always defining what is or is not uh, pornography and, and what is entitled to protection under the First Amendment um, and, and what is not. Um, um, that question is sort of uh, antecedent to the question of what the level of protection is. You determine whether it's entitled to First Amendment protection in the first place and certain types of speech like child pornography the court has determined uh, are not entitled uh, to protection under the First Amendment. Um, there are different categories, um, and the court uh, has struggled over the years in figuring out what, how to determine those categories and what belongs in what category, and uh, beyond that, I don't think I can give a more precise answer. Judge, let me, uh, let me turn to the area of congressional power. It's been talked about before here, but I want to talk about a little bit more. Um, and really, this has to do with federalism cases. Um, as you know, the court has handed down a number of cases that restricted the power of Congress to pass important legislation. 
Uh, the court had struck down portions of the Violence Against Women's Act, the Americans with Disabilities Act, uh, the Age Discrimination and Employment Act, and the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, just to name a few. Uh, in some of these cases, the court restricted Congress's power under the Commerce Clause. Uh, in some, it relied on the 11th Amendment, and in some, it cited Section 5 of the 14th Amendment. The particular provision is, is not that important for this discussion. Um, let me be perfectly frank. Um, I think there's some problems with these decisions. Um, I think it is wrong for judges to take on the role of policymaker. I realize that if a case, if a statute is blatantly unconstitutional, judges have to do their duty. But I think for the reason I'm going to discuss in a minute, that was not true in these cases. I want to cite one example, uh, and that is, just because of time, I only can go through one, and that is the Garrett case. Um, five to four decision, uh, Board of Trustees versus Garrett. Uh, as you know, this case involved a woman who said that she had been discriminated against because she was disabled. Uh, she was employed by the state of Alabama. She sued the state under the Americans with Disabilities Act. Supreme Court uh, threw out the suit, holding that there was no evidence that the states discriminated against the disabled in employment decisions. Um, I think the problem with Garrett is the court ignored findings by Congress. Um, there were other cases that have been decided where we didn't have findings. You're familiar with those. I understand the court's decision. I might like them or not like them, but I understand that. This case, we made findings. Uh, while we were considering the Americans with Disabilities Act, we held 13 hearings and we set up a task force. A task force that held hearings in every state. It was attended by more than 30,000 individuals. Based on these hearings, we found 300 uh, examples of disabled individuals being discriminated against in employment decisions. We found that two-thirds of all disabled Americans between the ages of 16 and 64 were not working at all, even though a large majority of them were capable of doing so. And we found that this discrimination flowed from uh, stereotypic assumptions about the disabled as well as, quote, purposeful, unequal treatment, end of quote. All findings by this elected Congress of the United States. And Garrett, however, the court said this was not enough. It rejected our fact findings, holding that we had not pointed to any evidence that the states discriminated in employment decisions against the disabled. Judge, you have stressed repeatedly in your writings and your opinions, um, and I have a great deal of respect for you and appreciate these writings and opinions. You've stressed the limited role that judges must play in our system of government. I applaud you for that approach. Uh, it's important for me to, to go to ensure that you still hold to this belief. Uh, in your opinion, uh, what role should a judge play when reviewing congressional fact findings? Uh, in your view, how much deference do congressional fact findings deserve? I understand you're not going to talk about this case or any of the cases I just cited. I want to lay that kind of as the predicate. Uh, I want to tell you where, where I'm coming from. Uh, but just talk in general about when you see fact findings by Congress, when we've held hearings, when we've established the record, how do you approach it? What are the tools that you use, Judge, based on the precedents and based on what you think of the role of the judge is? Well, again, and of course, without getting into the particulars, um, the reason that congressional fact-finding and determination is important in these cases 
uh, is because the courts recognize uh, that they can't do that. Um, courts can't have, as you said, the, whatever it was, the 13 separate hearings uh, before passing particular legislation. Courts, the Supreme Court can't sit and hear witness after witness after witness uh, in a particular area and develop that kind of a record. Courts can't uh, make the policy judgments about what type of legislation is necessary in light of the findings that are made. Um, so the findings play an important role and I think it's correct to say under the law in this area and others they're neither necessary nor necessarily sufficient but I know as a judge that they're extremely helpful when there are findings and judges know when they look at those that they're the result of an exhaustive process of a sort that the court cannot duplicate. Um, we sim simply don't have the institutional expertise or the resources or uh, the authority to engage in that type of a process. So that is sort of the basis uh, for the deference to the fact finding that is made. It's institutional competence. We, the courts don't have it. Congress does. It's constitutional authority. It's not our job. It is your job. Um, so the, the, the deference to congressional findings in this area has a solid basis. Now, in the particular area you're talking about under Section 5 of the 14th Amendment, um, the Garrett case, there are, of course, the more recent cases that you know of, the uh, Tennessee against Lane and the Hibbs case in Nevada against Hibbs, where the court uh, did defer uh, to the fact-finding uh, in those cases, uh, and particularly in the Hibbs case, focused on the legislative recognition based on its examination of the factual record developed at hearings about the statute that was at issue there and the particular approach that they were taking to remedy discrimination under the 14th Amendment, which is the authority that, that Congress has. Now, the legal requirement that the court has articulated there came of course from the, the city of Bernie case. The, the, the remedy, remedial approach has to be congruent and proportional. Um, Justice Scalia signed on to that approach in the city of Bernie case. In the Lane case, he said he'd changed his mind and he no longer agreed with that. It, any area of the law where Justice Scalia is changing his mind has got to be one that's particularly difficult um, and one that I think is appropriately regarded as still evolving uh, and emerging. Um, and so I don't know if the more recent cases in Lane and Hibbs represent a swinging of the pendulum away from cases like Garrett and uh, Kimmel on the other side, uh, or if it's simply part of the process of the court trying to come to rest with an approach in this area. But it is an, uh, an area that the court has found uh, difficult and uh, just as a general matter, I think when you get to this point of reweighing congressional findings, that starts to look more like a legislative function and the well, courts need to be very careful as they get into that area to make sure that they're interpreting the law and not making it. Well, Judge, I, I appreciate your answer and I'm, I'm going to uh, move on, but I, I would just say that one of the more disturbing uh, things to me about Garrett is that the, that the dissent and the majority opinion got into a, a, a dispute, a uh, verbal uh, dispute about what the facts were. And, uh, you know, they're, they're disputed about the facts. Uh, that seems to me that's not usually what the Supreme Court gets involved in. And, and uh, it seems if there's a dispute in the facts, you would normally defer to the uh, fact finder Congress. Um, let, me t let me take off on Garrett, maybe talk about another way to, to get at this. Um, 
rather than focus on the problem caused by Garrett, maybe there's another way to, to solve some of the problems uh, that would be raised by this. Um, Congress still has the power to protect the disabled under the spending clause of the Constitution. Um, we have the power of the purse. Uh, in South Dakota versus Dole, we wanted to establish a national drinking age of 21. You're well aware of that. Um, it was upheld by the court. Uh, we, we did it through the power of the purse in, in the Dole case. Um, I just wonder if Congress might be able to use this approach to require the states to waive their immunity from suit under statutes like the Americans with Disabilities Act. Uh, it seems to me that under the spending clause, we have at our disposal the power to protect the disabled, uh, to, to protect other groups, and effectively uh, overturn cases like Garrett uh, and these other cases uh, that limit legislative power. Uh, you seem to take that approach in a case entitled Barber versus Washington Metropolitan Transit Authority. Uh, that case concerned a disabled person who was suing a state entity under the Rehabilitation Act. In that case, you held that the suit could go forward even though the state entity was immune, immune from suit under the 11th Amendment. In your view, the state entity had agreed to waive its immunity in exchange for receiving federal mass transit dollars. Um, I think this case is important. Uh, it's important to me, at least, Judge. Seems to show us uh, what you think about Congress's power under the spending clause, and also gives us a model, I think, for how we might be able to protect those who are discriminated against under the Americans with Disability Act. Um, could you just take a moment? I've got two minutes left. Could you take a moment and tell us about the issue in the Barber case, and what was your reasoning for permitting a disabled person to sue in federal court for discrimination in that case? Certainly. Um, your case, uh, you're involved in the case, you're in the majority opinion. Yeah, um, uh, the, uh, it was a divided decision. Right. Um, the argument was whether Congress had the authority under the spending clause as a condition of the receipt of federal funds that WMATA, the metro here in D.C., uh, receives, that they waive their sovereign immunity to suit under the d uh, disability provisions. Um, and the argument was that Congress lacked that authority uh, that they could not impose a waiver of sovereign immunity as a condition for the receipt of federal funds to allow a, an individual alleging uh, discrimination on the basis of disability to sue. Uh, there was uh, no issue about whether uh, there was sovereign immunity in the absence of a waiver, uh, and the WMATA uh, governing body was opposing the suit on the ground that it had not waived immunity. Uh, and they were arguing that Congress lacked the authority to condition the receipt of funds on a waiver of, of immunity. It was a divided decision, uh, two to one vote. Uh, the dissenter argued that this was an inappropriate exercise of the spending clause power. Um, the majority uh, concluded that no, this was within Congress's authority. It could condition the receipt of federal funds on a waiver of sovereign immunity that allowed an individual alleging he was discriminated against in employment because of his disability to proceed with uh, with the suit. Um, uh, the arguments we rejected were arguments of germaneness. The idea was the funds were for transportation, not for employment, and so that wasn't a germane condition. Uh, the majority rejected those arguments. The uh, dissent would have uh, uh, ruled the other way. Judge, thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator. Thank you, Senator DeWine. Senator Feinstein. 
Thank you very We're much. We're going to take a, a 15 minute break when Senator Feinstein concludes her questioning at about Thank, 4 Thanks 15. very much. Thanks very much, Mr. Chairman. Good afternoon, Judge Roberts. Um, I want to follow up on something that Senator Cole said in his last question, which was sort of asking you to do a look back into some of the things you've written and said. And you've written, and this involves women, uh, either in margin notes or in comments or in memos. And I want to list for you some of the comments and ask you what do you think of them, what do you think of them today. In a memorandum to Fred Fielding, White House counsel under President Reagan, about the nomination of a woman to be recognized for moving from homemaker to lawyer, and your response to nominating this woman for an award was this, quote, some might question whether encouraging homemakers to become lawyers contributes to the common good, but I suppose that's for the judges to decide. In a memo responding to a letter from three Republican congresswomen that raised concerns about the pay gap that women experience, you said, and I quote, their slogan may as well be from each according to his ability to each according to her gender. You also wrote that the congresswoman's concerns, quote, ignore the factors that explain that, that apparent disparity, such as seniority, the fact that many women frequently leave the workforce for extended periods of time, etc. In another mem memo, you implied that it's a canard that women are discriminated against because they receive 59 cents at that time to every one dollar earned by men. In a September 26, 1983 memo to Fred Fielding, you rejected an alternative proposed constitutional amendment guaranteeing equal rights to women. In 1982, you wrote a memo to then Attorney General uh, in which you refer to the task force, which was to conduct a government-wide review to determine those laws which discriminate on the basis of gender as the ladies' task force. I mention these examples uh, to highlight what appears to be either a very acerbic pen or else you really thought that way. Did you really th think that way? And do you think that way today? Senator, um, I have always supported and support today uh, equal rights for women, uh, particularly in the workplace. I was very pleased when I saw, for example, the report of the National Association of Women Lawyers, um, who went out and talked and interviewed with uh, women lawyers who've worked with me, uh, who've appeared before me. And the conclusion was uh, that I not only always treated women lawyers with respect and equal dignity, but that I had made special accommodations for life work issues to ensure that women could continue to progress, for example, uh, at my law firm, um, and had always treated women who appeared before me in a perfectly professional way. Then why say those things? Well, let's take the first one you mentioned. Um, I'm, uh, it is to me, obvious in the memo that I've wrote to Fred Fielding that it was about whether or not it's good to have more lawyers. Whether they were from homemakers, from plumbers, from artists or truck drivers had nothing to do with it. 
the point was, is it good to have more lawyers? That's the way I intended it, and I'm sure that's the way. And you don't think it was good to have more lawyers? I think there were probably, the point that uh, Mr. Fielding and I had commented on on many occasions was that in many areas there were too many lawyers. Um, and that's a common joke that goes back to uh, Shakespeare, it has nothing to do uh, with homemakers. The notion that that uh, was my view is totally inconsistent and rebutted by my life. Um, uh, I, I married a lawyer. Uh, I was raised with three sisters who work outside the home. I have a daughter for whom I will insist at every turn uh, that she has equal citizenship rights with her brother. I don't want to belabor it. I'm just trying to understand how you think because you appear, you know, you speak about modesty and humility and yet none of these comments are modest or humble. Well, those comments were in the nature of the tone that was, was encouraged in our office. It was a small office. Uh, they expected we turn projects around very quickly. We were expected to be candid. And uh, if we're making a joke about lawyers, would uh, uh, make for a, a more enjoyable day on the part of the people in the office, that's what we did. So it's to fair to say you don't think that way. Is that correct? Well, I don't think in any way that is based on anything other than full equal citizenship rights on the basis of gender. Um, I might tell the lawyer, a lawyer's joke that there are too many lawyers today, um, but that's all it was back then. On the memo you quoted with respect to the issue of comparable worth, the one thing the memorandum made clear is that the position of the administration was there must be equal pay for equal work. That wasn't the issue in that case. The issue there was whether there should be equal pay for different work and whether judges should determine what type of work was equal. I'm not arguing that. I'm just arguing what you or, or bringing to your attention what you said then. Um, but I, I don't want to belabor it. Uh, I think you, you've answered uh, the question. Uh, let me ask you a question on Canarino versus Wilson. This is about the same time in 1982. And you pointed out in answers to prior questions whether that you were staff and you generally did what people asked you to do. In this case, uh, William Bradford Reynolds, the top attorney in the Civil Rights Division, um, indicated that there had been substantial, he thought, discrimination in prisons in Kentucky and that the Justice Department had done an investigation. And they found that male prisoners were given training for higher paid jobs, for a greater variety of jobs, and were given training for longer periods of time. Your memo contradicted his recommendation to intervene. Um, why would that be if you just follow uh, the policy of the office? My understanding there was that this, there was a question whether the intervention in that case, the case was being pursued by private litigants already, question whether intervention by the federal government in that case was consistent with the Attorney General's approach to institutional litigation. Um, that was an approach that he'd laid out in several speeches, memoranda, um, and as a staff member, it was my job to call to his attention areas where I thought there may be inconsistencies uh, in areas where he wanted to set policy priorities. Um, in response to the chairman's question this morning about the right to privacy, you answered that you believe that there is an implied right to privacy in the Constitution, 
that it's been there for some 80 years, and that a number of provisions in the Constitution support this right, and you enumerated them this morning. Do you then believe that this implied right of privacy applies to the beginning of life and the end of life? Well, Senator, I, first of all, I don't necessarily regard it as an implied right. It is the part of the liberty that is protected under the Due Process Clause. That liberty part is liberty, enumerated, yeah. yes. Um, and uh, the exact scope of it with respect to the beginning of life and the end of life, those are issues that are coming before the court in both respects. Um, um, and I don't think I should go further uh, to elaborate upon whether or not it applies in those particular situations. Obviously, right. it has been articulated by the court in both contexts, um, uh, the Cruzan case with respect to the end of life, the Glucksburg case uh, uh, following Cruzan. But I don't think it's appropriate for me, given the fact that cases arise on both of those questions, to go further. All right. Uh, let's move right along. Um, this morning, um, there was a discussion about stare decisis, and um, you pointed out that there were factors um, in the consideration of stare decisis. And I think one of the things you said was workability of framework is one of the main principles you look for in stare decisis. Well, in its decision in Casey, uh, the court specifically affirmed the doctrine of stare decisis as it applies to Roe. The court reviewed prudential and pragmatic considerations to gauge the respective costs of reaffirming and overruling a case, that, that case. In doing so, the court unambiguously concluded that Roe has in no sense proven unworkable. Do you agree with this conclusion? Well, that is that determination in Casey uh, becomes one of the precedents of the court, entitled to respect, like any other precedent of the court, under principles of, of stare decisis. Um, I have tried to draw the line about not agreeing or disagreeing with particular rulings, but that is a precedent of the court. It is a precedent on precedent. In other words, it is examined row. Uh, as, so as you agree that the court said that, obviously. Well, it said that, and that is a precedent entitled to respect under principles of stare decisis, like any other precedent uh, of the court. Um, but in terms of a separate determination on my part, whether this decision is correct or that decision is correct, my review of what other nominees have done is that that's where they draw the line, um, and that's where I've drawn the line. So uh, workability is clearly one thing. Is another one reliance? Certainly, or as it's often expressed in the court's opinions, the settled expectations. Uh, okay. People expect that the law is going to be what the court has told them the law is going to be. Um, and that's an important consideration. And in Casey, again, the court stated, and I quote, the ability of women to participate equally in the economic and social life of the nation has been facilitated by their ability to control their reproductive lives and that this ability to control their reproductive lives was enough of a reliance to sustain Roe, correct? That's what the court, I think you're reading from the plurality of the joint opinion. That's correct, yes. that's correct. Um, now, unlike my experience, 
there are now entire generations of women who know a world only where their reproductive rights are protected. Do you agree with the court that this reliance is sufficient? Well, again, I think that's asking me whether I think the decision is correct or not on that point. Um, it certainly was the analysis of the joint opinion uh, in the court entitled to respect as precedent like any other decision of the court under principles of stare decisis. And that would certainly be where I would begin if any of these issues come before the court. If I were to be confirmed, I would begin with the precedent uh, that the court has laid out in this area. One other question on Casey, and I'd like to quote from something that um, Justice Ginsburg said in the transcript in her uh, confirmation hearing in a discussion with then Senator Brown. Uh, the Casey majority understood that marriage and family life is not always what we might wish them to be. There are women whose physical safety, even their lives, would be endangered if the law required them to notify their partner. And Casey, which in other respects has been greeted in some quarters with great distress, answered a significant question, one left open in row. Casey held a state could not require notification to the husband. Do you agree? That is what Casey held, yes. <clears throat> and that's, as I said before, a precedent of the court like any other precedent of the court, entitled to respect under principles of stare decisis. Thank you. One other uh, reading from Justice Ginsburg's testimony. Um, abortion prohibition by the state, however, controls women and denies them full autonomy and full equality with men. That was the idea I tried to express in the lecture to which you referred. The two strands, equality and autonomy, both figure in the full portrayal. Do you agree or disagree? Well, I think Justice Judge, then Judge Ginsburg felt at greater liberty to discuss that precisely for the reason you noted, that she'd given a lecture uh, on, on the subject. Um, those are issues that come up again and again before the court and uh, consistent with what I understand the approach to have been of other nominees. Um, I don't think I should express a view okay. on that. I'd like to move on. Um, in Bray, you argued on behalf of the governor, government as Deputy Solicitor General that the right to have an abortion is not specific to one gender. Specifically, your brief stated, quote, unlike the condition of being pregnant, the right to have an abortion is not a fact that is specific to one gender, end quote. In your oral argument, you went on to make this point by comparing Operation Rescue's attempts to prevent a woman from exercising her privacy right to make decisions about her pregnancy to an ecologist's efforts to block an Indian tribe from using their exclusive fishing rights. Do you think that's an appropriate analogy? Well, Senator, it was an, a position and an argument that the administration made that was accepted by the Supreme Court by a vote of six to three. The point, underlying point was that under the statute at issue in Bray, the Ku Klux Klan Act, uh, the, required under the Supreme Court's precedence that people engaged in the challenged activity must be motivated by a discriminatory animus. Uh, obviously under the Ku Klux Klan Act, the classic case, racial hostility. And the issue was, are people opposed, in the Bray case, opposed to abortion, opposed to women. 
and the determination of the court was that no, that there are people who are opposed to abortion uh, and that does not constitute opposition or discriminatory animus against women and therefore that the Ku Klux Klan Act didn't apply. Many other provisions obviously apply in a case of abortion uh, protester violence, uh, including state law and other provisions of federal law. But the Supreme Court concluded six to three that there's no discriminatory animus based on opposition to abortion. Thank you. I'd like to move to another subject because my time is moving on. And that's what's been happening in the court in the last 10 years. As I mentioned, for 60 years, the court didn't strike down a single federal law uh, for exceeding congressional power under the Commerce Clause. Yet, in the last decade, the court's reinterpretation of the Commerce Clause has been used to strike down uh, more than three dozen cases. Um, the court's future decisions will determine whether the Congress will be able to make to take necessary action to stop child pornography, combat violent crime, ensure child support payments, prevent discrimination, improve our schools, and protect our environment. My question is, uh, do you agree with the direction in which the Supreme Court has moved in more narrowly interpreting congressional authority to enact laws under the Commerce Clause? Well, of course, I've tried to avoid saying whether I agree or disagree with particular cases, but I would point out in this area in particular, um, I think it's very important to look at the most, most recent case, which is the Raich case, the medical marijuana case, because the argument there was that these two decisions that you're talking about that were the first in the 60 years, Lopez and Morrison, the argument there was based on Lopez and Morrison, Congress lacks the power in this area. And what the Supreme Court said in the Raich case, which I think is very important, it said there, there are a lot more precedents on the Commerce Clause besides Lopez and Morrison. And the appropriate way to regard those is, is two decisions in a more than 200-year sweep of uh, decisions in which the Supreme Court has given extremely broad, it's recognized extremely broad authority on Congress's part going all the way back to Gibbons versus Ogden and Chief Justice John Marshall, when those Commerce Clause decisions were important in binding the nation together as a single commercial unit. So, I, again, I, without commenting on whether particular decisions are correct or not, I do think it's important to recognize that the court itself, in its most recent decision, has said you need to focus on the broad sweep and not just on those two decisions. Let me move to the case of the hapless toad known more commonly as Rancho Viejo versus Norton. Um, do you believe there's a basis for sustaining the Endangered Species Act other than the Commerce Clause? Well, what the opinion I wrote in there noted that the panel decision that I thought should be reheard on Bonk looked at one ground for under the Commerce Clause and the concluding paragraph, in my opinion, said that we ought to rehear the case to look at other grounds that were also under the Commerce Clause, but they were not the particular uh, prong of the Commerce Clause analysis that the panel opinion had relied on. And the reason was that, as I explained in the opinion, uh, another circuit court had suggested uh, pointedly that the approach in the panel opinion was inconsistent with the Supreme Court. And I thought if there was another basis for sustaining the Endangered Species Act that was not inconsistent 
in the view of another circuit court, that we ought to look at that and try to, to do it. It, and it really reflects a restrained and minimalist approach. Uh, if there's a ground that doesn't cause another circuit court to say, you're violating the Supreme Court precedents, we ought to look at that and see if we could rest. That's the point I'm that. trying to get at is you're saying that the fact that the toad was almost only found in California means that it was an impermissible use of the Endangered Species Act. Well, then that raises a question. What if the toad strays across the border? Or what if the toad, this is the last remaining toad? Right. Um, and, but the, the, the one point I would emphasize is my opinion did not conclude that there was no authority under the Commerce Clause in just that situation. There was another dissenting opinion that was filed by another judge who said this violates the Commerce Clause. I did not join that opinion. I wrote separately to say that we should hear this en banc with all the judges because there are other ways of sustaining this act that don't implicate the concern that has caused the other circuit to question our approach that had caused the dissenting judge to conclude there was no authority. And I thought we ought to look at those other grounds because if we could sustain it without implicating that objection, that would be better all around. Uh, I did not take the position that it was outside the scope of the Commerce Clause. It was a question of which ground under the Commerce Clause we ought to look at. Because there's a great deal of concern as to what this then means for the implication for all environmental law, the Clean Water Act, the Clean Air Act. But if I understand you correctly, what you're saying is that you do not believe that the Commerce Clause should prohibit legislation in this area. Is that correct? I have not had occasion to decide that. I did not decide it in the Rancho Viejo case. One of the other judges did, and I did not join that opinion. What I said is we should consider these other grounds. Now, I didn't have the opportunity because there was a dissent from rehearing to consider those other grounds. Those other grounds were what other courts, the Fifth Circuit and the GDF case, had used to sustain application of the Endangered Species Act in the cases that came before them. They didn't get into the question of the, whether you look at the regulated activity, the building or the, the um, actual what was prohibited, the taking of the toad. They analyzed the protection of the endangered species as implicating a commercial activity. Um, and that allowed them to sustain the act without regard to whether it had in interstate uh, uh, affect itself. Thank you very much. I'd like to ask a question or two on church and state. Um, you know, I mentioned in my opening statement that for centuries people have been persecuted for their religious beliefs. And our country grows more diverse every day. And tensions among different beliefs have grown. I really believe that there's a brilliance in what the Founding Fathers did in drafting the First Amendment and how it protected an individual's right to practice their belief, whatever it may be, but also protect against using religion against individuals by prohibiting the government from becoming and or imposing religion. In 1960, there was much debate about President John F. Kennedy's faith and what role Catholicism would play in his administration. At that time, he pledged to address the issues of conscience out of a focus on the national interest, not out of adherence to the dictates of one's religion. And he even said, I believe in an America 
where the separation of church and state is absolute. My question is, do you? Senator, I think the reason we have the two clauses in the Constitution and the First Amendment reflects the framers' experience. Many of them, or their immediate ancestors, were fleeing religious persecution. They were fleeing established churches. And it makes perfect sense to put those two provisions together. No establishment of religion and guaranteeing free exercise. Um, that reflected the framers' experience. Um, you can't I answer my question, yes or no? Well, I don't know what you mean by absolute separation of church and state. For example, recently in the Ten Commandments case, the court upheld a monument on the Texas Capitol grounds uh, that had the Ten Commandments in it. They struck down the uh, posting of the Ten Commandments in a Kentucky courthouse. Uh, is it correct to call the uh, monument on the Texas Capitol grounds with the Ten Commandments, is that an absolute separation? Or is that an accommodation uh, of a particular monument along with others that five of the justices found was consistent with the First Amendment? So I don't know what that means when you say absolute separation. I do know this, that my faith and my religious beliefs do not play a role in judging. When it comes to judging, I look to the law books and always have. I don't look to the Bible or any other religious source. It has been reported that during your meeting with Senator Wyden, while discussing end-of-life issues, you cited the dissent of Justice Brandeis in Olmstead. I like to quote from it. The makers of our Constitution undertook to secure conditions favorable to the pursuit of happiness. They recognized the significance of man's spiritual nature, of his feelings, and of his intellect. They knew that only a part of the pain, pleasure, and satisfactions of life are to be found in material things. They sought to protect Americans in their beliefs, their thoughts, their emotions, and their sensations. They conferred as against the government, the right to be left alone, the most comprehensive of rights, and the right most valued by civilized men. To protect that right, every unjustifiable intrusion by the government upon the privacy of the individual, whatever the means employed, must be deemed a violation of the Fourth Amendment. Do you agree with Justice Brandeis? I agree with his expression that it's a basic right to be left alone. Um, and uh, I think that animating principle uh, is a very important one. With, with regard to particular restrictions, he was talking about wiretapping, or I forget how the interception at, uh, actually at issue there, um, I, you know, I don't think it's appropriate to, to comment on. But as a general statement of the principle, uh, and it, again, it reflects just the basic uh, understanding that it's a free country and the right to be left alone is one of, the, one of our basic rights. I do agree with that. I do think the implication of what you said to Senator Wyden, and I've discussed this with him, was that one has the right to make their end-of-life decision. Well, that's an issue that is, is before the court uh, in particular cases, and I can't comment on a case that's coming before the court. Uh, if I am confirmed, I would have to confront that case with an open mind in light of the arguments presented, in light of the precedents of the court, um, and uh, the litigants in that, those cases are entitled to have judges 
that haven't expressed views on that particular case. Well, let me ask you this question then. Um, in an interview on PBS after the court ruled in Washington v. Glucksburg, a case involving a state statute that banned assistant suicide, you said, I think it's important not to have too narrow a view of protecting personal rights. What, what did you mean by that? Well, I went on to explain that the, the right, uh, any time there's an assertion of a right, there's quite often an assertion of a contrary right. Um, I think it was similar to the point Senator Kyle was making uh, earlier that, for example, if you're asserting a right uh, against uh, government regulation, then the right of the people to regulate through their elected representatives that's being struck down, that right is being restricted. Um, so it's, it's usually not, uh, it's often not, uh, we can view that there's a right on one side and there's nothing on the other side. There's often an assertion of a right on the other side. And what the courts have to do is make sure they provide a level playing field in which people disputing the impact of the Constitution on whose right prevails uh, have judges who will decide that case according to the rule of law and not according to whether they think one right should prevail or another. But do you believe then that the federal court should become involved in end-of-life end decisions? Well, Senator, that is exactly one of the questions that's before the court, and I can't answer that in the abstract. I have to answer that on the basis of the party's arguments, on the basis of the record in the case, and the basis of the precedence. Uh, an abstract opinion that would prejudge that case would be uh, inappropriate for a nominee to express. Let me ask it another way. Do you believe that the courts should have a limited role in that situation? I think courts have a limited role in general, and that is that they only interpret the law. They don't make the law. They don't shape the policy. Uh, now, the application of that basic principle, which is very important to me, uh, in a particular case is obviously something that has to wait for the litigation of that case, the arguments in that case, the arguments of the lawyers about whether it's consistent with the precedence or inconsistent with the precedence. But the basic principle that courts should not be shaping public policy, that's for the legislators, is a fundamental principle with which I agree. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Thank you, Senator. Uh, no, thank you, Senator Feinstein. Since, uh, I announced the break at 4.15. I've been advised that there was a vote at 4.30. So Senator Sessions has uh, graciously agreed to split his 30-minute uh, round, 15 minutes, and then we'll go vote. So we'll now turn to Senator Sessions for 15 minutes, and we'll break at that time and take a 15-minute break to go vote. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. I guess this phone, this microphone is working. Um, Judge Roberts, I want to congratulate you on your excellent testimony. Um, uh, you have uh, validated the President's confidence in you. Uh, many people said President Bush obviously looked around and looked around and finally decided to choose the best. And I think uh, uh, you've proven that correctly. The ABA has rated you unanimously, American Bar Association, and their formal rating process unanimously rated you well-qualified, the highest possible rating that they give. And they have quite a number of lawyers that vote on that, so uh, to get a unanimous vote uh, is, is not that frequent. Uh, and for a higher office, they have a higher standard. And I think that's particularly worthwhile that you are, uh, uh, receive that uh, recognition. I note in um, 
that some of our legal professional journals have given you in remarkable accolades. Uh, uh, the uh, American lawyer uh, in 2004 wrote that you were, quote, one of the Supreme Court's finest practitioners. Uh, and uh, the Legal Times uh, said, quote, you are one of the top appellate lawyers of your generation. And uh, the uh, Legal Times uh, also said that you are, quote, viewed by many as the best Supreme Court advocate in private law firm <laughs> practice. Uh, those are high praise, and I think today we've seen uh, why people would think that of you. I also would offer for the record, uh, Mr. Chairman, a letter from former Democratic Attorney General Bill Baxley from Alabama. He prosecuted the first prosecution of the church bombing cases in uh, Birmingham successfully. He is a lifelong Democrat, as he notes, an elected member of the State Democratic Executive Committee. This objection was made a part of the record. He said this, Senator, I know Judge Roberts well. I have entrusted three important appellate matters to him. In each instance, I met with him and engaged him in extensive conversation upon a wide range of topics. Because he is a man of such remarkable intellectual brilliance, I sought him out upon private as well as professional topics, enjoyed uh, more than one meal with him, and was each time overwhelmed not only by his intelligence, but also his innate sense of fairness, by his sensitivity to every aspect and angle of consideration of every issue addressed by him, and by his somber sense of decency and justice. A somber sense of decency and justice. I think a pretty good phrase. Um, my love of my country surpasses politics, um, uh, uh, Mr. Bashley says. It compels me to support Judge Roberts in every possible way in order that justice might most effectively prevail in the United States Supreme Court. I am confident in the ability of Judge Roberts to fairly and without any agenda of any kind address each legal issue which comes before him. I am equally confident of his ability to lead the Supreme Court in that administrative capacity. I have no doubt that the diverse opinions of each associate justice sitting on the United States Supreme Court will receive greater deference and consideration under his leadership than under any other chief justice with whom they have ever served. This wise and circumspect man deserves this office. So I think um, we have seen a great bipartisan uh, recognition of your capabilities and, and the respect that you have uh, reaches broadly. I also um, would recall Judge Roberts said in my opening statement, I t suggested that the pattern around here is to take out old statements and memorandum and bring them up out of context, and that particularly the outside groups and sometimes senators would get confused or, or sometimes these groups, I think, deliberately have attempted to paint a picture of you or the positions you took that are not fair or accurate. I would just want to uh, re, uh, uh, go over a, a few of the cases and uh, deal with um, some of the issues that you have already been questioned with to make sure that we're square about it. On the Gwinnett case, the Title IX, the women's uh, education case, um, the um, uh, position you took uh, that uh, would deny uh, the right to sue a state entity, a government entity for money damages, wasn't that 
a position consistent with the position of the Court of Appeals that had written the opinion, the only opinion on that subject. Yes. So the Supreme, that was the Court of Appeals position. Yes. So you, uh, in advocating uh, that position, were expressing a view that was the view of the highest federal court in the land at that time. Yes. With the question to the Grove City case, it was good that Senator Grassley from Iowa I knew about that, and um, um, I think he clarified that question uh, well here. With regard to Bolden versus City of Mobile, you and Senator Kennedy had an exchange. Well, I'm from Mobile. I was not involved in the litigation, but know something about that litigation. And when the exchange ended, as I recall, Senator Kennedy was uh, insisting that the Zimmer case was the established law and that a number of cases uh, had said that effects test applied, whereas you were contending uh, that at the time uh, you took the position you did, that the Supreme Court had ruled that it was the an intent standard was required and that Bolden uh, set the... Um, decision on that. And uh, I guess the question for us today, who, who was right? You or Senator Kennedy? Well, uh, I didn't want to ask you, a, I, but go ahead. No, I don't know if I, I say the senator's return. It was, it was a uh, renewal of a debate that was had uh, between the administration and Senator Kennedy 20 plus years ago. And uh, certainly the issue of whether the Supreme Court had in, interpreted Section 2 and what it had said and whether or not it was correct was uh, mooted. Uh, Senator Kennedy's position uh, eventually prevailed as a matter of legislation uh, uh, through the uh, uh, good offices of Senator Dole and others. Uh, the compromise was worked out and uh, the totality of the circumstances test enacted uh, under Section 2. Now, but the truth is, is it not, that Bolden versus City of Mobile had been decided by the Supreme Court and the Bolden versus City of Mobile said that you had to show in the when you consider a form of a local government that before you could throw it out create a new government for that city you had to show that it was designed in a way to intentionally uh, deny uh, equal rights uh, to the uh, minority citizens. That was my understanding of, and, and the, certainly the administration's understanding of Mobile and its interpretation of Section 2. And as I said, the debate was largely mooted by the legislative change uh, that, that wasn't well, I'm active. just trying to make this, get this thing straight because I don't want anybody to be misinterpreted. Uh, 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 Bolden versus City of Mobile quoted Zimmer. It was the final word on the matter, and it uh, ruled that uh, before the federal government could throw out a government of a city and require a new government to be established, there had to be an intent to discriminate. And that was consistent with the uh, Voting Rights Act. And then when the Voting Rights Act came up for uh, reauthorization, the legislature, uh, the Congress, passed a law and changed the law that in effect said the effects test, if it had the effect of discriminating or keeping African-American citizens from being elected to office, that that could justify the uh, uh, removal of the existing form of government and establishing a new government. 
Well, that, that's right. And it's, it's in many areas, uh, well, certainly every area involving an interpretation of the statute, the final say uh, is not with the Supreme Court. The final say on a statute is with uh, Congress, and if they don't like the Supreme Court's interpretation of it, uh, they can change it. And uh, that's what happened in this case. Well, the Voting Rights Act, let me say, was, is a tremendously critical historical event. It had it transformed the South. I think Senator Kennedy or others said that uh, grandchildren and children today are, are being able to vote and, and, uh, because of this right, and that's true. Not only are they being able to vote, uh, they're being able to be judges who supervise elections, sheriffs, uh, uh, mayors, city councilmen, county commissioners. Alabama has more elected African-American office holders than any other state in America, and we're proud of that. And, uh, uh, but uh, this was a powerful act, and it did change the makeup of county commissions, city commissions, statewide boards, all over Alabama, all over America. And it was a, a big step, but the Congress made that, and uh, uh, you were correct when you said that you were, your position was consistent with what the Supreme Court ruled at that time. Um, with regard to the question of comparable worth, I think Senator Feinstein was clear about this, but I'd like to make it a little bit clearer. Um, you have consistently favored equal pay for equal work, have you not? And, and did not President Reagan also favor that explicitly Absolutely. and openly? Uh, it's the question of this comparable worth theory that uh, apparently one district court uh, found in favor of, but that every circuit court and every other court that considered it rejected it, that said that some body, some commission, I guess, would decide whether a, um, a secretary should be paid as much as a truck driver or, um, and make those kind of uh, value judgments decisions. Uh, isn't that the difference between That's those right. two the, aspects? Yeah, the, there's no question of equal pay for equal work. It's the idea that someone should decide that different jobs are of comparable worth and that therefore they should be paid the same. And the district court adopted that approach. It was reversed by the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals in an opinion by then uh, Judge Anthony Kennedy. Well, that's right. I, I, I know he did write on that, and um, I, I think that uh, the Sixth, Seventh, Tenth, and Ninth Circuits all uh, rejected uh, that idea, and frankly, it hadn't been heard from since. I'm glad that uh, you and President Reagan didn't agree to that. At the time, we would have commissions of incredible complexity trying to decide uh, uh, very important matters. The National Academy of Sciences, in fact, found that uh, uh, and, and declared it did not believe that the value or worth of jobs could be determined by fair and scientific methods. Uh, so uh, I think that's important. Judge Roberts, um, I tried a lot of cases in federal district court. I've, I've, I've written appeals to the federal appellate courts and argued a few times in the court of appeals. I'd like for you to help explain to us how this court system works and what an appellate judge does. I mean, it's, appellate judges don't go about to set policy in America. They don't go out to supervise and superintend the legislative and executive branches. Uh, they decide cases that come before them. So 
isn't it true that um, that normally a case would be initiated in a federal district court or a state trial court, and a trial would be held often with a jury, and a judgment is rendered? Yeah, and that's what most people, most of us think of when we think of going to court. You're there, uh, you know, you bring in the witnesses, uh, they testify, they're cross-examined by the other side. There's one judge supervising the trial. Uh, if it's a jury case, the jury is there, and that's where most of the fact-finding takes place. People have different versions of events, you know, who was there, what did they do, and, and people tell different stories, and that's where you try to sort that out, um, uh, either before the jury or the single judge. And a judge has to rule. He has to rule on evidentiary matters or legal matters, and sometimes a judge is in the midst of trial, and maybe he makes an error, maybe he doesn't make an error. Uh, but every word of that trial is put down. It's recorded. And so after the trial, if the losing party is unhappy, uh, they can take an appeal. That's right. And when they do that, it goes to the Federal Court of Appeal for that circuit. And they uh, point out to the Court of Appeals where they think the judge made an error. And they say, this was wrong, and we want a new trial judge or a remediator or some other uh, remedy. Isn't that what happens That's in right. the next and step? The big difference when you get up to the Court of Appeals is that the facts are not really in play anymore. Somebody's been determined they think you're guilty or they buy your version of the events. The Court of Appeals usually just looks at the legal issue. Somebody says the judge made a mistake. He shouldn't have let that witness testify, or he should have uh, recognized that the police had no authority to conduct that search in a criminal case. And that's appealed to the Court of Appeals, where in the federal system, there are three judges, and they're just looking at that legal question. And they just go back and look at the law, the precedents, and determine whether or not the law was correctly applied in the trial court or if a mistake had been made and they need to do it over again. And if uh, they appeal, the lawyers write sometimes beautiful, carefully written brief briefs that point out the reasons why they think an error may or may not have occurred. Is that correct? As a, a court of appeals judge, that's exactly the kind of brief you're looking for. Uh, and every now and then you get one. <laughs> and sometimes when you read the first brief, you're persuaded. And when you read the second brief, you think maybe you weren't so Maybe you maybe it wasn't as clear as it, you thought it was when you read the first one. Not, not just sometimes, uh, Senator. Quite often, uh, that's my reaction. Um, it's a, uh, that's part of the adversary system, and you need to have lawyers doing a good job presenting the best arguments on either side, so you can feel comfortable that you're making as good a decision as you can. And so, as the lawyers in the case and the clients and the parties want a judge who will carefully read those briefs and be fair and. Uh, careful in analyzing whether or not they got a fair trial to ensure justice took place. That's what I was always looking for when I was a lawyer, Senator, yes. Mr. Chairman, I see this clock is going around in circles down here, I think. What do you want to do about time? Well, they haven't uh, started the vote, and we all know that that's not totally predictable even when they say 4.30. Uh, would you care to continue until the vote starts? I would be pleased if that would, Chairman Fine. would, would, so is that, you know what my time is now? Yeah, you can, you can run, you can run the red to, uh, well, it just went off. This is like the football referee, <laughs> put so much time back on the clock, it well, says a can, minute you, left. The red just started here, and you can, you, 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 you can run the red till seven minutes and 30 seconds. All right, very good. <laughs> Who am I to disagree with that, Chairman? What was that?
Senator Sessions, if you, if you would... Uh, I'll have 15 minutes after this. You, you, you have 15 minutes left, yes. So start the clock back at 15 minutes. Okay, good. Um, thank you. The doctor down here is good at mathematics. <laughs> Businessman, too. Um, so, and now... But it's even more complicated in that, in doing justice. And on the Supreme Court, if a case comes up to you, you'll probably have briefs from both parties. You'll receive the transcript of the trial that the, that the, that the issue arises from, uh, and uh, you'll study that. And you have several law clerks who will help you study that. And every one of the nine Supreme Court justices are also studying this same record and all these briefs. And isn't it true that friends of the court can submit briefs? Uh, well, at the, at the Supreme Court level, that's very common. Um, and in some cases, there are quite literally hundreds of so-called friends of the court or amicus briefs, different organizations that are interested in the particular ruling and have a particular perspective. Um, a few of them are even helpful. So you, uh, so you review that, and um, then you frequently set the case, or normally set the case for oral argument. If, if the Supreme Court decides that this is, of course, a very big part of their function, they get some 10,000 petitions uh, every year for people saying, I want you to hear my case. You know, we, we all lawyers say they're going to take it all the way to the Supreme Court. 10,000 people try to do that every year. These days, the court hears about 80 of those, uh, 80 of those 10,000. And the selection of which 80 to take is obviously a big part of, of the court's function. But once they've selected those 80 cases, then they go in and have new briefs on the merits, and all these amicus briefs are filed uh, from different organizations presenting their arguments or their particular perspective, um, and that, then it's set for argument. So the lawyers from both sides then appear before the court over in the Supreme Court building and they um, answer questions and make their presentations as to why they think the court should rule the way they would like it to. They usually get an hour for the whole case so each side gets, gets a half hour and that half hour is taken up almost entirely by the justices questions. Um, I went back once and counted the questions during my half hour and there were over a hundred questions. Obviously some of them the rapid fire questions and if you follow the court you could probably guess who was asking those and others the more elaborate questions but uh, more than a hundred and a half hours. So the, the job of the lawyer there is to be totally prepared to answer all of those questions and of course some of them are going to lead into traps and you have to be careful about that. Uh, the others are going to be the very difficult questions that uh, the, the, the court is eventually going to base its decision on. Uh, but it's, it's a very um, both exhilarating and demanding process to go through an oral argument before the Supreme Court. And I, I think there's little doubt that you are the best practitioner of it in the country. But uh, with regard to that, do you then finish and do the judges then meet in conference to discuss the case? They do. The, the justices, each of whom has prepared the case by not only reading all these briefs and attending the argument, talking it over with their law clerks, but also reading back over the cases, uh, the precedents that the lawyers have been arguing about. Uh, they go back and look at those. And then just the justices uh, in the conference room, no clerks, no staff, just the nine justices, uh, sit in the conference room and, and uh, talk about it. 
uh, thrash out the case. Uh, eventually get to a point where they take a vote on what they think the disposition should be. The decision should either be affirmed or reversed or sometimes something else uh, in between, half affirmed, half reversed, sent back, whatever. Um, and then the opinion is assigned and, and, and that's still very much part of the process, uh, the writing of the opinion, uh, because quite often, or maybe not quite often, but often enough, the justices find out that as they try to write a particular opinion, uh, different problems come up. It doesn't seem as, uh, it's not writing as they thought it would, and sometimes they have to go back and, and re revisit the case because uh, the judge, uh, the justice assigned the opinion decides that it's not, should come out the other way or there should be a different reason, a different basis for the decision. Um, and then once the justice who's writing it is comfortable with the opinion, they send it around to all the other chambers um, and the individual justices, if they agree with it, they send a memo around to everybody else that says, please join me. That's just the, the jargon the justices use. It means please join my name to your opinion. Um, and sometimes they'll have suggestions. You know, I'd be happy to join your opinion, but I disagree with this section, or I disagree with this footnote, or I disagree with this line of reasoning. If you could change that, uh, I'd be able to join. Well, if you're a justice who's getting, this is the first reaction you've gotten, the first vote back, you might be a little more willing to make a change to accommodate that suggestion. If you've got seven votes already in the bank and somebody says, please change this or change that, maybe you're a little less willing because maybe then some of the others say, well, now I'm, I'm not happy with that change. And it can obviously get to be a very complicated uh, process as the memos fly back and forth and the court tries to come to some consensus around an opinion often, maybe too often, uh, there's not total agreement and somebody will write a dissent and send that around uh, and others will join that. Concurrence, you know, I'm, I, I can't agree with your reason but I agree with the result and so I'm writing separately to give you my reasons. And the, and the balance changes. Somebody can write a concurrence and all of a sudden they've got five votes and it's, uh, it's the majority and the other majority, the original majority becomes the concurrence but it's uh, um, uh, uh, the, the Analysis is done at, at, and this has been my experience on the Court of Appeals as well, a, a very high level. And I think it's critically important um, that it's just the justices alone who go into the conference room. Just as on my court now, it's just the judges who go into their conference room. Because judges and justices in that situation can be a lot more open with their, their views. Um, and it's been quite common in my experience over the past uh, more than two years to have a just judge say, you know, this is how I view the case. And then another judge say, well, what about this? And the judge can say, well, I hadn't thought about that. Or the record says this. And you get out the record. Uh, judge, get it out there and look um, at it. But at some point, you agree to sign on an opinion one way or the other. Right. And that becomes a decision of the judge and maybe the majority of the court or maybe a dissent. But that's a decision that's made. Isn't that why you should not in this hearing today, blithely start expressing opinions on complex matters when you haven't been through that process and start prejudging matters before you've heard, read the briefs, before you've read the transcript, before you've heard the arguments, before you've talked to your clerks, before you've discussed it with other judges. Isn't that the essence of what justice is? Is this careful process that leads us to as fair a result as humanly possible? I, I think that's uh, perfectly accurate. Um, and if you've had the experience, as I know every judge and every justice has, 
of having your original view changed when you read either the other side's brief in a case after reading the opening brief, or had your view changed as a result of the discussion at conference, or had your view changed when you tried to write the opinion one way and it came out the other way, then you appreciate the significance of that process. And it's a total distortion and a perversion of that process to start out by saying, well, uh, you know, I testified under oath uh, that I thought this decision was correct, so I'm done. You know, no need to read the briefs, no need to listen to the arguments, no need to go into conference and talk with the other judges on the bench. I've already given my view under oath. Or even if you are going to be open to reconsideration, to start with that barrier, I testified under oath that this is the, the correct uh, approach, that this is the right result. Now maybe you can persuade me otherwise. Well, that's not the burden that the litigant should have to take. The litigant should be able to know that all of the judges, all of the justices uh, that that person is arguing before have an open mind and are fully open to the process. You wouldn't want to call um, Senator Biden and ask him permission to change the commitment you made, would you, in that co hearing? <laughs> Uh, no. Just a joke there a little bit. Um, <laughs> the, uh, you, you don't want to have to read the transcript of this hearing uh, well, I, by I, the I time when you try to decide how to rule on the case to make sure you didn't make some commitment. Well, I mean, yeah. I think that's uh, uh, all I wanted to point I would like to make there. You know, Senator Specter came right out the chute uh, asking you about stare decisis and, and, and uh, um, Roe and other related type matters, and that's an important question. Uh, as I understand it, uh, you committed to Senator Specter that you would bring no hidden agendas to this matter, that you would consider uh, any case that came up on the row or any other case that might uh, impact stare decisis, and that uh, you would apply a reasonable professional analysis to that, uh, drawing on the history of courts and their opinions in dealing with these cases, and would try to make a fair and honest and objective decision. Is that what I understood you to say? That's what I understood uh, my testimony to be, yes. And uh, you're not saying one way or the other how you would rule on Roe or some of the other cases that have been... Um, no, I, I feel that it would be very inappropriate for me as a nominee to tell how I would rule on a particular case that might come before the court. Well, I would like... Um, uh, to know how you'd rule on a lot of those cases, too. But I, I didn't ask you when you came and talked with me, and I don't think it's appropriate. I don't think uh, those of us who are politically conservative ought to look to the courts to promote our conservative agenda through the manipulation of uh, interpreting words of the Constitution or statutes. I don't think liberals have a right to ask the court to promote their agenda by uh, twisting the plain meaning of words to accomplish an agenda. What we need is what you said, an umpire, uh, fair and objective, that calls it like they see it, based on the discrete case that comes before the judge. I, I think that's most important. And I would just say, uh, I don't know the answer to those questions legally and how it'll all come out, but I would just offer that our polling data continues to show that uh, young people and, and numbers in general are, are, are showing that the people are more hostile uh, to abortion than they used to be. Perhaps it's seeing the sonograms and those kind of things. Um, they, uh, uh, Seventy-five percent, according to a Harris survey, said that they didn't think an abortion was proper in the second uh, trimester. Eighty-five percent said they didn't think it was proper in the last trimester. 
Uh, I just saw an interesting article by Mr. Uh, Benjamin Wittes. He writes for the Washington Post. He declares he's pro-choice uh, 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 and says, uh, let go of Roe. And he goes into an analysis of it. Uh, he says, uh, he said, uh, I'm not necessarily thinking Roe ought to legally be overturned, but if it does die, I won't attend its funeral, nor would I lift a finger to prevent a conservative president from nominating a justice who might bury it once and for all. This was in uh, Atlantic Monthly, January of this year. And he goes on to say, uh, 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 Roe puts liberals in the position of defending a lousy opinion that disenfranchised millions of conservatives on an issue about which they care deeply while freeing those conservatives from any obligation to articulate a responsible policy that might command uh, majority support. And uh, he goes on, and as have others. He goes on to say this, uh, uh, the right to an abortion remains a highly debatable position, both jurisprudentially and morally. Uh, and uh, he um, also noted that uh, um, in the years since the decision, an enormous body of academic literature has tried to put the right to an abortion on firm legal ground, but thousands of pages of scholarship notwithstanding, the right to abortion remains a constitutionally shaky proposition. Abortion policy is a question that the Constitution, even broadly construed, cannot convincingly be read to resolve. So that's one opinion. I'm just saying uh, uh, you will have to deal with it, and I just don't think that we ought to take the view that that matter is open and shut, and I hope that you will take you at your word that your mind is open, and you will uh, evaluate the matter fairly according to the high standards of justice that you can bring to bear to that issue and any others like it that come up. Will you give us that commitment? Absolutely, Senator. I would confront issues in this area as any other area. Uh, with an open mind uh, in light of the arguments, in light of the record, uh, after careful consideration of the views of my colleagues on the bench, um, and I would confront these questions just as I would any others that come before the court. Well, uh, I come of the view that the Constitution is a contract with the American people, uh, that um, developments will occur that clearly fit within in the uh, ambit of a fair reading of that Constitution that were never contemplated by the founders. Things do change, and we have to apply new circumstances. But wouldn't you agree a judge uh, should never make an opinion that is beyond what a fair interpretation of the Constitution would call for? Yes. Judge Roberts, thank you for responding uh, to my questions and to those of the other members of this body. You've been open, honest, and direct in providing a great view of your judicial philosophy and how you approach cases. I appreciate the fact you have correctly avoided some questions, some you should not answer. You hadn't read the briefs and heard the arguments and thought about it, uh, but you've carefully answered the appropriate questions, and we respect you for it. Thank you. Thank you, Senator Sessions. Uh, uh, the vote is now in process. Uh, we will... Uh, recess until 5.05, .05, at which point we'll call on Senator Feingold for his 30 minutes of questioning. We stand in recess. Just a little late in coming back because we're on the floor trying to figure out what the
Senate schedule is going to be, when we would vote next. And while that's uncertain, I believe it is reasonable to conclude that we will not vote until 7.30. Uh, that gives us uh, latitude to move ahead with five more rounds where we will finish at about 7.30, a little later because we're not starting quite at 5, 7.45. So we will proceed uh, uh, with Senator Feingold now and then Senator Graham from 5.30 to 6, Senator Schumer from 6, 6.30, uh, Senator Cornyn from 6.30 to 7, and Senator Durbin from 7 to 7.30. That's back by 15 minutes because we're 15 minutes slow coming out of the gate. Senator, you also look at sheer undisguised glee on the face of Ju uh, Judge Roberts at the idea of going another three hours of this? Well, uh, uh, two hours. I consulted with uh, Senator Leahy, uh, uh, Judge Roberts, and uh, uh, the empirical evidence is overwhelming without consultation that you're fit to go indefinitely. I'm ready to go. Is that, uh, is that judgment uh, satisfactory to you? Uh, Absolutely. Judge Roberts. Senator Feingold. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Judge Roberts, the eyes of America are on you this week thanks to what our generation called the miracle of live television. Television plays an enormous role in providing information and bringing the country together and times of national pride like the liftoffs and the landings of spacecrafts and presidential inaugurations, political conflict like the 2000 election and the 1999 impeachment trial of President Clinton, the great tragedy of September 11th and the devastation wrought by Hurricane Katrina. Americans can watch virtually every significant event of national importance on television except for oral arguments and announcement of decisions at the Supreme Court. If you are confirmed, you will essentially disappear from public view. This hearing will in some ways be the last time that the nation will see you at work. The possibility of televising trials raises, trials raises some complicated issues because we have to consider the safety and rights of criminal defendants and witnesses and jurors, but such concerns are not so present in the case of appellate proceedings. There is no doubt that there is enormous public interest in Supreme Court oral arguments, but not very many seats in the courthouse. I think it would benefit the country and the court if all Americans had the chance to see the court conduct its work. So I'd like to know if you, as, as Chief Justice, will support televising the court's uh, public proceedings. Senator, it's, it's not something that I have a settled view on. Um, and <clears throat> I do think it's something that I would benefit from the views of my colleagues. Um, and I know that some of them have particular views and some may, may not. And, and I noticed the last time a, there was a formal response by the court to a request to televise a particular argument. Uh, the Chief Justice referred the matter to the whole court and then reported back on it. Um, I'm also aware that there are, um, I'm not sure if the right word is experimental or trial efforts going on in some of the courts of appeals, the federal courts of appeals, to televise um, arguments there. Um, and I know I've watched them. Uh, so um, I appreciate uh, that opportunity. Um, and I don't know yet if there's been uh, an evaluation of how that experiment's uh, uh, proceeded, whether the judges thought it went fine, the lawyers, or whatever. Uh, I, I'm, I'm just, I just don't know. Uh, at the Supreme Court level, um, I do know they've experimented recently in a few cases with um, releasing the audio tapes immediately after the conclusion of the argument. Um, again, I've 
listen to those uh, on occasion. Not every case, but selected cases of particular interest. Um, I know that on our court, uh, my court, I'm sorry, on the Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit, um, we broadcast, at least within the courthouse, simultaneously the oral arguments. So I know that the technology is there to do that. and, and um, uh, I certainly understand the interest, um, and I understand how I know it was very well received to have the audio tapes immediately available in some of those cases. I hope you'll seriously consider this. So certainly. what's changed from our a good conversation we had about this before is that now you will be the principal decision maker on this as the Chief Justice, and I hope you'll give it serious consideration. Judge Roberts, on September 11, 2001, uh, obviously an event occurred that had a profound effect on all of us in this country. We all have our own memories of that day. Uh, during those first few hours after the attacks, I kept remembering a sentence from a case we both uh, probably studied in law school. These words were, while the Constitution protects against invasions of individual rights, it is not a suicide pact. I took these words as a challenge to my concerns about civil liberties at that horrible time in our history. We have to be careful not to take civil liberties so literally that we allow ourselves to be destroyed. But then when I actually tracked down the case itself, not remembering what case it was from, it was Kennedy versus Mendoza-Martinez, and I found that Justice Arthur Goldberg made this statement, but then went on to rule in favor of the civil liberties position in this case. He actually affirmed the importance of civil liberties in wartime. So I'd like to start this part of my questions by asking you what kind of impact that day had on you and your belief system, and whether it changed your view of the importance of individual rights and civil liberties and how they can be protected. Well, I, I remember the day vividly, Senator. I, I think I was one of the last people in the country to find out about it. Um, I had entered, gone into a hearing. It was actually uh, in an original action in the Supreme Court. The special master was at GW Law School. And we had a hearing. I think it was starting uh, a little before 9 that day. We went in there. I remember just as I was leaving getting a report that a plane had struck the World Trade Center, but it was at the time, uh, I thought it was like, you know, one of those tour planes. It was, it, I had no idea what they were reporting. I went into the proceeding and we conducted the hearing. It lasted several hours. Uh, nobody notified us and we didn't know about it. And I remember leaving and trying to walk back to my office. I was at the law firm then and the street was blocked off and I figured, well, there something going on at the White House. I remember walking down further and it was still blocked off and still blocked off and I finally went up to one of these uh, guards and I said, well, you know, what's going on? And he looked at me like, well, where have you been? And only then did I uh, begin to appreciate it. I went back to my office because there was no way to get out of town by then. But at what point did you start thinking about the implications of this in terms of the of civil liberties and the challenges this this Well, poses. it was when I went back to the office and saw the smoke rising from the Pentagon. And uh, as you can imagine, that was a chilling sight. Um, and the, the basic issue of how you address the question of civil liberties in wartime, in times of crisis, um, uh, is a critically important one. Um, the Bill of Rights uh, doesn't change during times of war. The Bill of Rights doesn't change in times of crisis. 
there may be situations where the demands are different and they have to be analyzed appropriately um, so that things that might have been ac acceptable in times of war are not acceptable in times of peace. I think everyone appreciates that. But uh, the Bill of Rights is not suspended, um, and the obligation of the courts to uphold the rule of law is not suspended. Did you recognize at that moment that this might become a time when it would be harder to protect civil liberties? I, I think... Uh, I don't recall recognizing that in particular, but that is, of course, always the challenge uh, in times of war and in times of stress, uh, whatever the cause. Um, uh, I think it is the obligation of the courts to remember, uh, just as, as really the motto of the D.C. Circuit from our the earliest case when the treason trial of Aaron Burr, to calmly poise the scales of justice. The emphasis is on calmly. It requires a certain dispassion, a certain separation from the that's passions of the moment. That's absolutely right, and that's why I want to follow on what Senator Leahy asked about earlier, a different time, a different challenge. As a nation, we can now look back at wartime Supreme Court decisions like Korematsu versus United States with something like bewilderment. We talked about it earlier. It, to me, it seems inconceivable that the United States government would have decided to put huge numbers of citizens in detention centers based on their race and that the Supreme Court would have deferred to the president's decision to do so. Do you believe that Korematsu was wrongly decided? Uh, it's one of those cases that um, uh, I don't think it's technically been overruled uh, yet, but I think it's widely recognized as not having precedential value. I do think the result in that case. Uh, Korematsu was actually the, considered the exclusion, and not, so, not the actual detention, but the exclusion of individuals based on their ethnic racial background from vast areas. Um, and uh, it's hard for me to comprehend uh, the argument that that would be acceptable these days. I, uh, it's often included if you list uh, decisions that are sort of considered some of the worst decisions in the history yes. of the Supreme Court with Plessy versus Ferguson and Dred Scott and others. Is that a fair characterization of your yes. view of Korematsu? Yes. Are there any elements of the government's response to September 11th that you think uh, 50 or 60 years from now we as a nation will look back on with regret? Well, I'm, I'm sure there are some, Senator, uh, and when you have the benefit of 50 or 60 years to look back uh, as opposed to the particular demands of the moment and the perceived demands, uh, I'm sure it's a different perspective. I'd, I'd hesitate to mention any in particular because so many of these issues are coming before not only the Supreme Court, but the court on which I now sit. Um, uh, and I will have to uh, confront those cases, I think, uh, regardless of what happens here. Um, so I'd, I'd hesitate to identify particular areas of concern. Well, I understand your caution. I, I don't think we need to wait 50 or 60 years for some. Um, for example, do you have any concerns about the practice of extraordinary rendition of our government secretly sending people to countries uh, that we know use torture? Well, uh, again, Senator, that is something that could come before the court um, in one form or another. And um, I, I think I have to refrain from commenting on it. How about the federal government using um, immigration laws to round up and detain people for months, often with regard, without regard for whether they had any connection to September 11th investigation, which actually, in this case, the Justice Department Inspector General later heavily criticized? Now, does that does that trouble you? Well, uh, yes, certainly. At that, at a at a basic level of appreciating that this is uh, a reaction uh, uh, in a particular way that raises serious questions. I'm very hesitant, though, 
again, to express a view on legality because those issues uh, could come before the court. They are coming before the court, and they're coming not only before the Supreme Court, but the court on which I now sit. Let's go to one that's already come before the court. Um, the Hamdi case is one of the most significant recent decisions restraining executive branch power. In that case, eight members of the court found that the government had gone too far in claiming the right to detain and hold a U.S. citizen incommunicado within the United States without access to a lawyer and without charging with a, with a crime. The case actually resulted in four different opinions with four different views on the president's power uh, to detain a U.S. citizen indefinitely and without trial, ranging from Justices Souter and Ginsburg, who found that the president does not have any authority to detain citizens as enemy combatants because such uh, detentions had not been congressionally authorized to Justice Thomas, who would defer entirely to the executive branch. Which of the four opinions, in a case that's already been decided, in Hamdi, would you say best approximates your views on the executive powers to designate en en enemy combatants? The plurality opinion, the Souter-Ginsburg opinion, the Scalia-Stevens dissent, or the Thomas dissent? Well, Senator, that does get into the area asking me to comment on which opinions I think are correct uh, that I don't feel it's appropriate for me to, to go. I do know that the approach in this area is the approach set forth by Justice Jackson in his concurring opinion in the Youngstown case. Uh, that has set the framework for consideration of questions of executive power in times of war uh, and with respect to foreign affairs uh, since it was, it was decided. And as you know, the issue in those cases and in many of the cases in the Supreme Court is uh, whether Congress has endorsed the executive action, in which case the President has his powers and the powers of Congress, whether Congress has prohibited the executive action, in which case all he has is whatever residual authority he has, less the power of Congress, or what often happens uh, in that vast middle area where it's impossible to tell or there's argument about whether Congress has approved the action or not. Uh, the Dames and Moore case that was decided in 1981 is an example of that when to resolve the Iranian hostage crisis, the president abrogated uh, claims and re uh, relegated those with claims to a, the Iranian claims tribunal. The issue there, the court looked back at a variety of congressional enactments going way back to the Civil War to try to determine if this type of exercise of authority is something Congress endorsed or opposed. Uh, but with regard to these opinions, and I understand your hesitance to comment on a particular opinion or the, the nature of the reasoning, but which of the approaches uh, in terms of the actual finding of, of, of the opinion do you find closest to your view? Well, again, I don't remember which of those opinions follows the Youngstown analysis the most closely. My understanding of the appropriate approach in this area is that it is the Youngstown analysis, the one set forth in Justice Jackson's concurring opinion. And I think that is the most appropriate way to flesh out the issues. You do need to understand, because this is an area in which the judges need to understand. Um, uh, there's often conflict between the branches, and you do need to at least set the table correctly to understand is the president acting with congressional support against it, or do we have to try to determine which of those areas it is? Um, and I think you do need to lay that analysis out before deciding, deciding the case. Last month when I was home in Wisconsin, a constituent came up and said to me that he believed that the D.C. Circuit decision in the Hamden case, a different case, which you joined in uh, to uphold the government's ability to try a Guantanamo Bay detainee by military commission, should disqualify you from being on the Supreme Court. Uh, now, this is apart from the issue that Senator Schumer and I wrote you about, 
which I'll turn to later. I, I want to know with regard to the substance of the decision. Why do you think someone would think that your decision in that case, why would somebody come up to me and say that your decision in that case should disqualify you from consideration as a Supreme Court justice? Well, Senator, you, you've touched upon an area in which I cannot comment under the, that case is still pending. Uh, it's pending before the Supreme Court. Um, under the judicial canons of ethics, canon 3A6, uh, I'm not supposed to comment publicly in any way about a case that's still pending. I'm not asking you to comment on the case. I'm asking you why you think somebody who I represent would care enough about this issue that they would say this should be a disqualifier. In other words, characterize well, what is the issue in the case that would make somebody that concerned that they would make such a statement? Well, the issue involves the same sort of issues that you began the discussion with, the question of civil liberties um, in, in wartime. Um, and certainly I understand people uh, having strong views on that particular question, but whether the decision on the merits was correctly resolved or not or anything about it, um, I'm just absolutely prohibited from talking about it by those judicial canons. Um, there's even an advisory opinion that explains that that canon applies to a Senate confirmation hearing. So um, my ethical obligation not to comment publicly on a case that's still pending uh, prevents me from saying anything more. Of course, I respect your judgment on these matters, but um, I, I believe that uh, it's important that the nominee indicate uh, a sense of, of why people in this country might have some anxiety at this point about well, the difficult uh, events that have occurred since September 11th and, and how it creates a climate sometimes of fear, in particular fear of government power that I think it's important not only for members of Congress but even members of the Supreme Court help, help minimize. Uh, and I'm just trying to get a sense if you well, feel that concern in the nation. Of, uh, I certainly don't minimize the significance of a decision uh, by the Court of Appeals or by the Supreme Court about the scope of executive authority in this area, about its impact on individual <laughs> liberties, about the issues of separation of powers and whether the relation between the Congress and the executive, whether the executive is acting with congressional endorsement, support, or in the face of congressional opposition. Those, of course, are very sensitive issues and always have been uh, throughout our history. Um, I certainly appreciate that. Um, uh, those are significant matters. It's just that I'm prohibited from talking about the substance of the case. Let me talk to some an aspect of, of the case that I think you can speak to. Uh, many people were surprised to learn in your questionnaire submitted to the committee that you were interviewed by the Attorney General in connection with the possible vacancy on the Supreme Court on April 1st of this year just six years before you sat in the panel that heard oral arguments in the Hamden case. And that while the case was still pending, uh, before a decision was issued, you had additional interviews in May with the Vice President, the White House Counsel, Mr. Karl Rove, and other top officials. I'm going to give you an opportunity to explain why you think it was not necessary for you to recuse yourself from the case. But first, I'd like to know, did the possibility of recusal, because you were under serious consideration for Supreme Court, occur to you, or, or was it raised with you at any point prior to the oral argument in the case? Well, Senator, that again is a question I can't answer for you. I can't address that. There's motion pending in the court uh, seeking to file a petition uh, to recuse, um, and that motion is pending. Uh, it's a matter I can't talk about outside of the judicial process. In addition, um, because the Hamdan case itself is still pending, um, I don't think it's appropriate for me to address that. Judge, I'm a little disappointed with that answer. As you know, Senator Schumer and I sent you a letter 
uh, asking questions about this issue. And then we received a letter on September 1 from the Assistant Attorney General for Legislative Affairs at the Department of Justice on your behalf. It says, quote, your August 24th letter requests that Judge Roberts answer certain questions regarding the D.C. Circuit's recent decision, Hamden versus Rumsfeld. As you know, Chairman Specter has scheduled hearings on Judge Roberts' nomination to begin immediately after Labor Day. At that time, Judge Roberts will be available to respond to questions from all senators on the committee, unquote. Now, now I took that to mean a little more than telling me you couldn't talk about it. Are you now refusing to answer a question even about when this issue Senator, came to your attention? Senator, I'm, we're talking about the canons of judicial ethics. They're quite clear on the subject. They say I may not talk about a matter that's pending before the court. Even when it first came to your attention? That matter is still is pending before the court. My hands are tied. Um, it's not something I can discuss under the canons of ethics. Guess I'll have to move on. Let's go to voting rights. I want to follow up to Senator Kennedy's questions about the Voting, voting Rights Act and in particular about uh, your opposition to amendments to the Act in 1982 when you were an advisor to the Attorney General in, in the Reagan Administration's Justice Department. In 1982, Congress voted overwhelmingly to amend Section 2 to reinstate the test for vote dilution that many lower courts had used prior to the City of Mobile case, one that looked, as we talked about earlier, at the effects of an electoral scheme on the ability of minorities to elect candidates of their choice rather than on the intent behind the scheme. While you were in the Reagan Justice Department, you seemed to have done almost everything in your power to, to thwart that congressional effort. Your view was that the intent test should stand this was the policy position of the Justice Department, which you, as you've indicated, and you wholeheartedly supported it at the time. Your memos make that very clear. In one memo, you lamented that the House bill then under consideration would make it much easier to attack, a, quote, such widely accepted practices as at-large voting, unquote. Now, those practices, of course, were among the most commonly used systems to prevent the election of any minorities to local government bodies. We know that the effects tests put into place in the 1982 amendments to the Voting Rights Act has been very successful in improving minority representation in Congress and at all levels of government. Do you believe today that those gains have been good for the country? I think the gains under the Voting Rights Act uh, have been very beneficial uh, in promoting the uh, right to vote, which is preservative of all other rights. Um, the issue about how to extend the Voting Rights Act, again, um, my position was a member of the staff in the Justice Department. The administration position of extending the Voting Rights Act for the longest period in history, as is, without change, um, uh, was in no sense reflective of any disagreement with the proposition uh, that the Voting Rights Act was extremely valuable in securing not just the right to vote, but all other rights. Well, what I'm trying to get at here, Judge, obviously, is this distinction between effects and intent. I mean. Let's, let's follow up on, on the fact that you said that these gains have been good for the country. Do you believe that these gains we've seen in minority representation would have occurred if your view supporting the intent approach had prevailed in 1982? Well, I think some of them would have. I don't know if all of them would have. It's obviously impossible to tell to go back and determine whether a particular application of a different approach would have had the same results uh, or different results. I think that's very hard to... Do you still believe that the intent test was the more appropriate standard by which to evaluate vote dilution claims? Senator, I, my personal view of the Voting Rights Act was not something somebody was interested in. You have people who serve on your staff, and their job is to help you implement your views as a senator. I'm not questioning what, I, you, I'm just what your saying, view was then. I'm asking what you think now, having, and this is a pretty settled area, I think you'd agree. Having seen all this, having been intimately involved in it, knowing it as well as you do, 
do you believe that the intent test is was still the more appropriate standard by which to evaluate vote dilution claims? I haven't studied the Voting Rights Act to determine whether the intent test or the effects test would have different results in different cases under Section 2. I'm in, in no position to make a judgment on that. Be my sense that you would be a person who would, with your enormous abilities and background, to, to, to have some sense about that. I, Obviously, you understand that requiring a voter to prove any additional factor makes it harder for, to, for the voter to win the case, and that to prove the intent of an entire legislative body can be very difficult, especially when a voting system was put in place many years ago, right? requiring African Americans and Latino voters, many of whom have had limited financial resources to find evidence of intent, was adding an enormous hurdle for them to overcome. And the Mobile versus Bolden case itself uh, which was pursued after the Supreme Court's decision in 1980 and before Congress amended the law in 1982, makes it very clear, I think clear to all of us over the years, how difficult that standard was. African Americans from Mobile, Alabama had been unable to elect any candidates to the position of city commissioner for every election cycle for something like seven decades. They challenged the method of electing city commissioners that allowed the same majority to choose all the commissioners all the time in at-large elections. And the evidence was very clear that as a practical matter, uh, although African Americans could register and vote, they couldn't elect anyone. But to get relief under the Supreme Court standard, which you appear to have supported, they had to go to enormous effort and financial expense to prove discriminatory intent, including hiring a historian who could piece together the motivations of city officials who had designed the electoral system almost 100 years earlier. In this situation, the administration was, was not bound by a Supreme Court decision in deciding what position to take on the proposed Voting Rights Act amendment. Uh, so why, why at that point did you want to make Section 2 cases so difficult to prove? Senator, you keep referring to what I supported and what I wanted to do. I was a 26-year-old staff lawyer. It was my first job as a lawyer after my clerkships. I was not shaping administration policy. The administration policy was shaped by the Attorney General on whose staff I served. It was the policy of President Reagan. It was to extend the Voting Rights Act without change uh, for the longest period in history at that point. And it was my job to promote the Attorney General's view and the President's view on that issue. And that's what I was doing. Uh, I recognize that. What I'm, I'm trying to figure out is, given the fact that you followed this issue for such a long time, I would think you would have a view at this point um, about whether you were right about, or the, the department, let's say, since you were working for them, whether the department was right on seeking the, to keep the intent test, or whether time has shown that, that the effects test is really the more appropriate test. Well, Senator, I haven't followed the, 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 the issue of the particular litigation. I had was involvement in some litigation when I was in the Solicitor General's office in which we were effective in proving violations under the Voting Rights Act. Uh, many of those cases arose under uh, issues under Section 5, preclearance issues, and not un under Section 2. Um, I, as a judge, had a case, a uh, three-judge district court case, uh, again, arising under the preclearance uh, provisions. But I, I'm certainly not an expert in the area and haven't followed and, and, and have no way of evaluating the relative effectiveness of the law as amended or the law as it uh, was prior to 1982. Well, with all respect, I, you know, I realize we, I should move on to another topic, but it just seems given how strongly you stated some of these memos, and I understand you were doing your job, I would think you'd have a view today whether or not those strong statements still make sense. But let me move on. As you know, uh, 42 U.S.C. 1983 is a federal law that allows Americans to sue those who deprive them of their rights under the Constitution or federal statutes. 
1983 is a very important law because it has enabled individuals who are deprived of their rights to such things as Medicaid, public housing, child support enforcement, and public assistance to enforce those rights in federal court. And I'm, I'm a little concerned that you seem to consistently argue for making it harder to bring Section 1983 lawsuits and briefs you filed, you advanced a series of arguments to effectively reverse decades of Supreme Court decisions and restrict Americans' ability to enforce federal statutory rights under Section 1983. As Deputy Solicitor General, you co-authored an amicus brief and argued in favor of the Supreme Court in, uh, in front of the Supreme Court in a case called Wilder versus Virginia Hospital Association. You said that individual Medicaid providers should not be able to sue under Section 1983 to enforce a provision of the Medicaid statute which requires states to reimburse them for services at reasonable rates. One of the arguments you made is that in order for a statutory right to be enforceable under Section 1983, the court must find that the Congress clearly intended, quote, to authorize, to authorize private enforcement of that right in federal court, unquote. You repeated this argument in another case you later argued when you were in private practice, Gonzaga University versus Dell. The Supreme Court uh, rejected your arguments in Wilder and found that the Medicaid providers uh, could sue. In the later Gonzaga case, the Supreme Court specifically rejected your argument and found that it was not necessary for plaintiffs in a 1983 case to show that Congress intended to create a private right of action to bring a lawsuit since Section 1983 already supplies a cause of action. What role did you play in deciding that the government would participate as amicus in the Wilder case? And what role did you play in developing the argument that it, that it made? And did you agree with the position that the government took in the case? Well, I'll answer the question, but before I, I do so, I, uh, the position I advanced in the Gonzaga case prevailed. Um, uh, the, uh, the argument that we made on behalf of the university, I was obviously representing the university's position, um, and they uh, prevailed uh, before the, the Supreme Court. Um, in the Wilder case, um, the determination to participate as an amicus was made uh, by the Solicitor General, um, and I don't recall particular role in that case. Um, I, I worked on the brief. I presented the argument. Uh, we, we lost that case uh, five to four. Uh, it was a close issue. All of these issues go to the question of what Congress intended to do. Um, uh, if Congress had spelled out whether or not a right should be enforceable in court, that is what the determination would be in court. These issues arise only because of confusion over whether or not Congress has spelled out that a right should be enforceable in federal court for damages or not. Um, and in the Wilder case, the court determined uh, five to four that uh, the right should be enforceable uh, in federal court. We were as an amicus supporting uh, one of the states. I don't remember which one it was. And the state was making the argument that there is the, the, the right is the, the issue in all of these cases is whether the right should be enforceable well, administratively about, as opposed to the Excuse me, I'm about to run out of time. Let me point out the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court did not accept the argument that the plaintiffs had to show that Congress intended to create a private right of action. And I'm wondering now, do you now agree with the argument that you've consistently made, both as a government lawyer in Wilder and while in private practice in Gonzaga, that individuals should not be able to sue under Section 1983 to enforce a right unless the Supreme Court finds that Congress clearly intended to authorize private enforcement of that particular right in federal court? Well, the, the Gonzaga decision, which resulted, there were various arguments made in the brief. The, the ruling of the court was in favor of the university that I was representing. Um, and the determination in the Gonzaga case about what should be shown and what has to be shown is one of the precedents of the court that uh, uh, I would follow as any other consistent with rules of, of stare decisis. Um, that's not an area in which I have any particular view. I've argued both sides of that 
uh, issue uh, on behalf of plaintiffs that argued in favor of it and on behalf of defendants against it. Again, the issue is not the enforceability as in Gonzaga. The, uh, the issue was should individuals be allowed to bring suit as opposed to uh, action by, in that case, the Department of Education. Thank you for your answers, Judge Thank you, Senator. Thank you, Senator. <clears throat> Thank you, Senator Feingold. Senator Graham. Mr. Chairman, um, I imagine the reason that you argued different positions is because people paid you. Is that correct? That's how I made my living, Senator. Yeah, okay. I can relate to that. Um, I imagine it must be very hard to figure out con what Congress intends. Do you agree with that? Sometimes it's easier than others, yes. um, and uh, sometimes it's, it's hard to read the tea leaves. I can relate to that also. Um, I want to read an excerpt from the National Association of Women Lawyers and their evaluation of you. 83005, as a lawyer and judge, based on interviews the committee conducted, Judge Roberts has treated individual women lawyers fairly and with respect, has fostered careers of women lawyers, has been helpful in enabling women to address work-life balance issues while advancing professionally, and has been consistently described as respectful to female colleagues, female lawyers appearing before him, and female employees. You've been asked about every case I think ever written by anyone. I would like to talk to you a little bit about life. The idea of judging you based on this section of the Commerce Clause and that section of the Commerce Clause is important, but I think most Americans want to know a little bit about you. And from what I can tell, the people who've worked with you and against you generally like you and that you've been described as brilliant, one of the best legal minds of your time, well-qualified. The adjectives go on and on, and I want the record to reflect that comes from people who know you the best. The best indication of a good lawyer is how people on the other side think of you, and we'll get some excerpts from the record to put that into the record. Apparently, from what I can tell, you've conducted your life in a noble, honorable manner, that you've been a good litigant, and that you have fought for your causes, and you've done so to earn respect of those on both sides of the aisle. But there's a greater issue here about who you are. You're a, Justice Rehnquist was your mentor, is that correct? He's certainly someone from whom I learned a great deal, yes. So if I was trying to figure out who John Roberts is, and a little bit about him, I'll ask this question. Write the legacy of uh, Justice Rehnquist for a minute or two. What would you say if given that task? Well, um, you know, I think if you were able to ask him, um, he would talk about being a grandfather, being a father. I'm asking uh, you Being not. a husband. I'm and asking those, you. But the important point is that those were important things in his life. And he appreciated uh, the need to recognize that uh, those are the most important things. With respect to the law to which he devoted his professional life, um, I think a big part of the legacy that he leaves is um, uh, a Supreme Court uh, in which all of the members uh, respected and admired him because of his fairness in administering the court uh, and conducting the important responsibilities like managing the conference and uh, uh, assigning opinions. You can go back in history and look at what other chief justices did. Um, some were, uh, in terms of that administrative responsibility, uh, some were disasters. Uh, uh, 
uh, if you look at uh, Harlan Stone, his idea of running the conference, he said what he thought. Then the next senior ju justice said what he thought. Then Justice Stone critiqued that. Then the next justice, and then Justice Stone critiqued that. And the result was the conferences went on for days, and everybody ended up hating each other. So, so he ran a good ship. I think we all agree with that, and his colleagues respected him where they disagreed with him or not. But the basic question is, when you write about the legacy of a Supreme Court justice, you write more than about being a grandfather and more about running a tight ship, especially Chief Justice. Would you agree with the idea that from a conservative point of view, he was the gold standard? I think he was a very effective uh, uh, advocate on the bench for a, a view of the Constitution um, that is one of limited uh, and separated powers. Do you share that view? I do. I think that the... Uh, now, I have to tell you that uh, whether as a judge on the Court of Appeals or if I am confirmed on the Supreme Court, um, I will certainly be my own man and there are... No, no one's doubting that. No one's doubting that you will not try to be fair. But the big theme, 30,000 foot view of you, is that when you look at Judge Roberts, you're looking at someone uh, in the mold of a Rehnquist. Is that a fair assessment? Well, you know, it's an, I admire the, the late Chief Justice very much, and um, uh, but I, I will have to uh, insist that I will be my own man, and I hesitate to be put in anybody's mold, um, and I would certainly approach the cases according to the judicial philosophy that I have developed over the years. In many respects, it's, it's similar to his in its recognition, I think, of the limited role uh, that judges should have, uh, and a, a sufficient and appropriate modesty and humility, a recognition that the idea of a dramatic departure under your watch from the Rehnquist era is probably not going to happen. Is that true? Given my view of the role of a judge, uh, which focuses on the appropriate modesty and humility, the notion of dramatic departures is, is not one that uh, I would hold out much hope for. Now, I know people don't like being labeled, put me in that category, but I'm in a business where people label me all the time. And, uh, but I ask for it. I, I run for office. But we do tend in our business of politics to try to label people, uh, particularly when we're talking about judges. When the president introduced you to the United States, to the people of the United States, he said you were a strict constructionist. Do you know what he meant by that and why he chose to use those words? Well, um, I'd hope what he meant by that is somebody who's going to be faithful to the text of the Constitution, to the intent of those who drafted it, um, while appreciating uh, that sometimes uh, the phrases they used, they were drafting a Constitution for the ages, to secure the blessings of liberty for their posterity. They were looking ahead, and so they often used phrases that they intended to have effect. Does that term make you feel uncomfortable? No. Right. Now, from a 30,000-foot view of things, it seems to be that we're going to have a referendum on the Reagan era here, which I welcome. I sort of enjoyed it. He won 49 states. He did pretty good. You were part of the Reagan era as a young lawyer. When I use the word term Reagan revolution, what does it mean to you? Well, it, it uh, means to me uh, generally a change in attitude. Um, uh, Pres uh, President Reagan uh, always presented an optimistic view. Uh, he always told us that the uh, best days of our country were ahead of us. 
Um, and uh, he reasserted basic fundamental truths in areas like foreign relations. We were going to stand up to the Soviet Union. We're proud of our system of government. That's the right approach, uh, not the Soviet approach. And people uh, who've come of age after the Berlin Wall has fallen uh, sometimes don't understand what it meant at that time. When it time. comes to the law, what does the term Reagan Revolution mean to you? I think it means a belief that we should interpret the Constitution according to its terms, that judges don't shape policy, that judges interpret the law, and that legislators shape policy. The executive branch executes the law. Does it also mean that when you talk about affirmative action and you set up a quota system, that's not right? President Reagan's policy was opposed to quotas, which were much more rigid at the time. People need to appreciate 24 years ago the idea of a quota was a rigid set-aside. We now have the recent Supreme Court decisions talking about consideration of particular factors as one factor in an affirmative action program. President Reagan was in favor of affirmative action and he was opposed to quotas. When it comes to voting rights, as I understand, and we've talked a lot about it, and we probably know more than all of us ever dreamed we would know about the Voting Rights Act, that you are implementing a policy of President Reagan that wanted to pass the Voting Rights Act uh, in its form that you received it. Is that correct? The, the proposal was to extend it for the longest period in history without change. And we've been through the um, a long discourse about the effect and intent test. I think you've explained yourself very well that the Supreme Court in the Mobile case uh, said the intent test applies to Section 2. Is that right? Section 2. But politics took over after that, didn't it? Because the effect test no longer... That's not the test. Isn't it some compromise between Senator Kennedy and Senator Dole? There, there was a compromise uh, in the test under Section 2, which is articulated in a paragraph describing what the criteria are, including a ca caution that this should not be read to promote proportional representation, which was some of the concern that the Attorney General and uh, President Reagan had. So between Dole, Senator Kennedy, and President Reagan, a new test was called the totality of the circumstances? Yes. Now, when you said that you, um, Senator Kennedy said something I thought was very important, that courts should not stand in the way of elected officials who are trying to right wrongs. And the point I'm trying to make here is that you were picked by a conservative president because you have associated yourself with the conservative administrations in the past, advising conservative presidents about conservative policies. And there's another selection to be made, and you're going to get the same type person. And you can, I'm not even talking to you now. <laughs> to expect anything else is just unfair. I don't expect, I didn't expect President Clinton to pick you. Not because you're not well qualified, not because you're a good person just a different political, legal philosophy. Now that's what we're going to have to come to grips with here. Justice Scalia, do you consider him conservative? Yes. Do you think you're more conservative than he is? Oh, I, I don't know. I mean, oh, I no. wouldn't... Uh, well, he got 98 votes. And I think you're conservative, but I think you're one of the great minds of our generation, of our time. And I'm dying to find out if you get any votes. 
on the other side. Time will tell. Let's talk about righting wrongs here. I think it stinks that somebody can burn the flag and that's called speech. What do you think about that? Well, uh, <laughs> we had the uh, Flag Protection Act uh, after the Supreme Court concluded that it was protected. Show me where the term symbolic speech is in the Constitution. Well, um, it's not. It's not. Fact. They just made it up, didn't they? Now, I think it stinks that a kid can't go to school and say a prayer if he wants to voluntarily. What do you think about that? That's something that's probably inappropriate for me to comment on. Uh, what do you think Ronald Reagan thought about that? His view was that uh, voluntary school prayer was appropriate. I think it's not right for elected officials to be unable to talk and protect, talk about or protect the unborn. What do you think about that? Well, again, uh, Senator, these are issues that are likely to come before the court, and I can't comment on those particulars because Why are judges to... more capable of protecting or talking about the unborn than elected officials? Well, again, those are issues that come before the court on a regular basis in particular cases and if whether on my current court or the future court I need to be able to approach those cases with an open mind and not on the basis of statements I make during a confirmation hearing. The point is that righting wrongs is a very subjective thing. And you will be asked to decide the fate of people with individual needs and individual desires based on particular fact patterns and legal briefs. I'm confident you can do that and that you will do that. And I don't think you need to make a bargain with me to right all the wrongs that I see in life to sit on the Supreme Court. What's it like to go through the nominating process in 2005 from a personal point of view? I've been watching television, channel flipping, and I see some awful things said about you. Have you seen those things? I've seen some things, yes. Uh, How does that make you feel? Well, um, uh, some of the mischaracterizations, um, uh, you know, you get annoyed at them. Um, I uh, don't like them. Uh, some of the things you see, uh, you, you get pretty upset about. How does it make your family feel? Um, they're, they're uh, I would say they get upset about some of the things as well. But uh, you know it's a free country and that's just the way it is, right? It is, and uh, it's an expression I've been using a lot lately. It is a free country and it's a good thing that it is. Let's not talk about you now, but I would like you to comment to us, give us some advice here. We're always trying to advise the president through you. What's the long-term effect on the quality of candidates that we'll be able to recruit for jobs like the Supreme Court if the current process continues and grows over time? I think it is a very serious uh, threat to the independence and integrity of the courts uh, to politicize them. Um, I think um, that is not a good development to regard the courts as simply an extension of the political process. Um, that's not what they are. I've been fortunate for the past two years to serve on a court in which all of the judges, and they come, the DC Circuit, they come from 
very active careers in public life, sometimes very identified politically. Um, but it's a court where those judges put aside those uh, uh, ties and those views and become judges all focused on the same mission of uh, vindicating the rule of law. And if you look at the decisions on the D.C. Circuit, you'll see that we are almost always unanimous. Um, uh, we almost always come out uh, the same way. And to the extent they're disagreements, they don't shape up along political lines. That is an ideal. But the more and more that the process becomes politicized, the less likely that that's going to happen. Another line of inquiry that's been disturbing to me is that we talk about the clients you represent whether it be the Ronald Reagan administration or some private sector client. And we tend to hold that maybe unpopular position against the lawyer. There is more and more of that happening. We've had Court of Appeals nominees that were accused of being insensitive to the disabled population when they won their case nine to nothing in the Supreme Court defending a university from the idea that they were not covered under the Americans with Disabilities Act. I really do worry that in the future that if we up here start holding who you represent against you, that young lawyers in the future will pass on the hard cases. What's your thoughts about that? You know, it's a, a tradition of the American bar that goes back before the founding of the country. Uh, that lawyers are not identified with the positions of their clients. The most famous example probably was John Adams, who represented the British soldiers charged in the Boston Massacre. Um, and he did that for a reason, uh, because he wanted to show uh, that the revolution in which he was involved uh, was not about overturning the rule of law, it was about vindicating the rule of law. Our founders thought that they were not being given their rights as uh, uh, under the British system that, to which they were entitled. Uh, and by representing the British soldiers, he helped show that he, he, what they were about was defending the rule of law, not undermining it. And that principle, that you don't identify the lawyer with the particular views of the client, or the views that the lawyer advances on behalf of the client, is critical to the fair administration Do you believe it's being eroded? I do think there is uh, an unfortunate tendency to uh, attack lawyers because of the positions they press on behalf of clients. Um, um, and I think that's unfortunate. I'm going to give you some examples of a sitting Supreme Court justice in her positions and basically take us back to the good old days where you could have what I think are extreme positions and still make it. Are you familiar with ACLU? Certainly. In the conservative world, how does that rank on the food chain? <laughs> uh, I don't know that I could comment on that. It's, it's, they, they have a consistent position of promoting civil liberties and a particular view. Uh, if you came to the Reagan administration and the top thing on your resume was the general counsel for the ACLU, do you think they would hire you? I might make it a little harder. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's a good observation. Well, we have on the sitting Supreme Court now the former general counsel for the American Civil Liberties Union, who is a very nice lady, extremely qualified. I don't agree with her hardly at all, but a great lawyer. 
she has written that the age of consent for women should be 12. That all prisons to have gender equality, men and women should be in the same prison because when you separate them, women prisoners somehow are discriminated against. She wanted to do away or argued the idea that Mother's and Father's Day should be done away with because it stereotypes men and women. Um, that there's a constitutional right to prostitution. I can give you, and I'll introduce into the record, writings from her point of view that most conservatives would find totally unacceptable. But this person, this lady, the former ACLU executive counsel is sitting on the Supreme Court and she got 96 votes. She said that there should be federal funding for abortion. 90% of our caucus is pro-life. Is that about right? Pretty close? I can assure you that if a Republican was going to make their vote based on abortion thinking, she'd have gotten no votes. Most Americans don't want federal funding of abortion, even though they're divided on the issue of a woman's right to choose. She has argued that the Equal Protection Clause guarantees a right to abortion. Now, I completely differ with that. And I'm sure the conservatives in the Senate at the time of her confirmation completely differed with that. The idea of the age of consent should be 12, that bigamy statutes are discriminatory to women. I can go on and on and on. And the point I'm trying to make is that all of that was put aside. Who she represented and what she believed in the position she took. And somehow, back then, they were able to see in Justice Ginsburg a well-qualified, brilliant legal mind. And they deferred to President Clinton because he won the election. Whether that happens to you, I don't know. But for the sake of the country and the rule of law, I hope it does. I hope you can be in the ballpark of where she wound up. Last two questions. In your opening statement, you articulated the rule of law in a way that I thought was just outstanding. It was emotional. It made sense. Average people could understand it. That the courtroom is a quiet place, Judge Roberts, where you park your political ideology and you call the balls and you call the strikes and you try to give every American a fair shake and you put politics in its perspective. What is your biggest concern, if any, about the rule of law as it exists in America? And what are the biggest threats to the rule of law as we know it today? Well, you know, the rule of law is always vulnerable because the Supreme Court, as has been pointed out often in history, uh, has only the persuasive power of its opinions to command respect. There have been famous episodes in the past um, you know, President Jackson, Chief Justice Marshall has given his opinion, let's see him enforce it. Other episodes of that sort. 
Um, but over time, the legitimacy of the Supreme Court uh, has been established uh, and it's generally recognized across the political spectrum that it is the obligation of the court to say what the law is and that the other branches have the obligation to obey what the Supreme Court says the law is. Um, uh, the one threat, I think, to the rule of law is uh, a tendency on behalf of some judges to take that legitimacy and that authority and extend it into areas where they're going beyond the interpretation of the Constitution, where they're making the law. And because it's the Supreme Court, people are going to follow it even though they're making the law. The judges have to recognize that their role is a limited one. That is the basis of their legitimacy. I've said it before, and I'll just repeat it myself. The framers were not the sort of people, having fought a revolution to get the right of self-government, to sit down and say, let's take all the difficult issues before us and let's have the judges decide them. That would have been the farthest thing from their mind. The judges had the obligation to decide cases and the authority to interpret the Constitution because they had to decide cases, and they were going to decide those cases according to the law, not according to their, their personal preferences. Um, judges have to have the courage to make the unpopular decisions when they have to. That sometimes involves striking down acts of Congress. That sometimes involves ruling that acts of the executive are unconstitutional. That uh, uh, is a requirement of the judicial oath. You have to have that courage. But you also have to have the self-restraint to recognize that your role is limited to interpreting the law and doesn't include making the law. What would you like history to say about you when it's all said and done? Um, I'd like them to start by saying he was confirmed. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that was too recent. <laughs> uh, uh, whether they say that or not, I would like it. The answer is the same. Uh, I would like them to say I was a good judge. Um, Thank you very much. I have no further questions. Thank you very much, uh, Senator Graham. Uh, Senator Schumer. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you, Judge. It's been a long day, and uh, I guess we have a little bit longer to go. But uh, you've been talking something about baseball. We've been talking about it this morning. I'll start out by pitching you something of a softball, uh, an issue, I think, on which reasonable Americans can agree. And those are the recent and abhorrent attacks on the federal judiciary. Um, many Americans have become concerned that the judiciary has come under escalating, and many would say inappropriate and unjustified criticism from certain quarters. Not just criticism of the legal reasoning, but it goes way beyond that. The rhetoric gets pretty hot. And as you know, uh, your, one of your mentors and our late Chief Justice, Rehnquist, uh, was a passionate defender of the independence of the judiciary. I didn't agree with him on a whole lot of things, but I sure respected that. And he did a good job both with our committee and everywhere else uh, making sure uh, that happened. Um, so you will be Chief Justice. We haven't talked about your role much here as Chief Justice. The chief, the leader of the courts, the head of the judiciary, and I think one of your important roles is to defend the independence of the judiciary. Um, so I'm going to read you a few statements that were made about federal judges in recent months. Uh, 
televangelist Pat Robertson's claim, claimed that, quote, an out-of-control judiciary is the single greatest threat to democracy, unquote, that judges are creating a, quote, tyranny of oligarchy, unquote, and that the threat posed by the federal judiciary is, quote, probably more serious than a few bearded terrorists who fly into buildings. Do you find that, do you disagree with that statement? Um, I, I do disagree with that conclusion, Senator. I think it's perfectly appropriate for uh, people to criticize decisions of judges. Um, um, that's, that comes with the territory. It's a healthy thing. Uh, uh, that type of criticism and analysis, saying the judge got it wrong, the court got it wrong, is, is uh, healthy and good. Um, uh, and the only thing I would say is uh, I'm not sure whether that criticism is along that lines or, but, but personal attacks on judges uh, for doing their best to live up to the judicial oath, that is uh, something that I don't think is... Well, isn't uh, this language, I'm asking about this language, this doesn't seem to be a legal uh, didaction about a court case when somebody oh, it's not says an analysis. judges oh, are probably more serious the, the threat posed by federal judges is quote probably more serious than a few bearded terrorists who fly into buildings isn't that kind of quote abhorrent uh, and, and inimical to our system I don't agree with that uh, and uh, all I'm saying is that uh, I think people have a right to be critical of judges um, uh, but uh, attacks on judicial independence uh, uh, are not uh, appropriate because judges, um, uh, and certainly even judges with whom I disagree on the results or particular merits, they should not be attacked for their decisions. They, the decisions can be criticized, but uh, attacking the judges, I think, is not appropriate. I, would you be a little stronger than that in terms of well, language like this? I mean, not appropriate is kind of mild in these kinds of sort of inflammatory type statements about a judiciary that you may soon be entrusted with protecting. Senator, I've said, um, uh, I said yesterday um, that if confirmed, I would be vigilant to protect the independence and integrity uh, of the Supreme Court um, and the judicial branch, and uh, that is true. An independent judiciary is one of the keys to safeguarding the rule of law. Again, I said that yesterday, and I believe that. Um, and to the extent the judiciary is attacked, uh, I will be vigilant to respond and defend it. Uh, Let me read you two more and just tell me how you'd characterize them. Uh, conservative lawyer and author Edwin V. Edwin v. Era suggested that Justice Kennedy, a appointee of Ronald Reagan, uh, ought to be impeached for his decisions and quoted Stalin's infamous problem-solving solution of, quote, no man, no problem. And Tony Perkins of the Family Research Council said, quote, the court has become increasingly hostile to Christianity, and it poses a greater threat to representative government more than anything, more than budget deficits, more than terrorist groups. Do you strongly disagree? Don't those statements turn your insides a little bit? You know, uh, again, uh, I don't agree with them, it's, but it's a free country. They're free to say what they wish. But uh, the uh, issue of impeachment uh, was resolved uh, in the Salmon Chase 
hearing. The basic principle was established. You don't impeach judges if you disagree with their decisions. Uh, that's not what the impeachment provision is. Take it and just forward. answer. If you were became Chief Justice, you would do whatever you could to dispel these kinds of notions and oppose people who said things like this when they say these things? Well, I, I would do what I can, Senator, to make clear to people, and I do think it's an important educating function, that what judges do promotes the rule of law and that the rule of law preserves liberties for all Americans. Um, I'm obviously not going to infringe anybody's First Amendment rights. People are not asking that. that they are. I'm asking but just your First Amendment opinion of these kinds of things and the most, I guess, you said is you disagree. Well, Senator, uh, people from all across the political spectrum have attacked judges. Uh, they do it now. Uh, I've seen some very virulent attacks uh, from all over the political spectrum and certainly throughout history. Um, uh, again, uh, judges can stand the, the, the criticism of their opinions, uh, but, no, uh, but personal attacks, I think, are beyond the pale. Okay, I'd like to go uh, over some other things here. Um, I have to say I've been pleasantly surprised by some of your answers today. Um, as you know from our private meetings and my opening statement yesterday, my principal concern is ensuring that we don't have people on our court who will dismantle the structural protections that have guaranteed our most fundamental constitutional rights. And what troubles me and why I think many people are bothered by this right now is that the president has openly stated that nominees will be chosen in the mold of justices who have stated repeatedly their desire to roll back the clock on some of these basic protections. In my view, over the past 60 or 70 years, maybe longer, uh, three legs have sustained our constitutional rights. The 14th Amendment's guarantees of equal protection and substantive due process, the right to privacy, and a broad delegation of authority to Congress to pass legislation, usually under the Commerce Clause, necessary to protect our nation's security, the environment, Americans' health, and workers' civil rights. On these first two, you have given answers that uh, I think show uh, that you want to protect those rights, and I just want to repeat them and just make sure that you're on the record for them. To Senator Biden, he asked, do you agree there's a right to privacy to be found in the Liberty Clause of the 14th Amendment? And you responded, I do, Senator. Liberty is not limited to freedom from physical restraint. It does cover areas, as you said, such as privacy, and it's not protected only in procedural terms, but it's protected substantively as well. That accurately states your view. Yes. And on the, um, the Griswold case and uh, the right to privacy there, you said in reference to Senator Cole's question, quote, I agree with the Griswold court's conclusion that marital privacy extends to contraception and availability of that. The court since Griswold has grounded the privacy right discussed in that case in the liberty interest protected under the due process clause. That is your accurate view. Okay. Just one question. I know this could take the rest of our time, but if you could answer it succinctly. Just tell me how, I'm interested in how you will divine what that right to privacy means. I mean, this is going to be an issue in the 21st century that's before us in many, many different ways. Um, and 
There's no words in the Constitution. Well, uh, the court in, for example, I think most recently in the Klucksberg case, uh, talked about um, uh, the necessity of considering uh, the nation's history, traditions, and practices. Uh, as Justice Harlan always explained in his opinions, you need to do that with an appropriate sensitivity to the limitations on the judicial role. Again, you need to recognize that it is not your job uh, to make policy, either under the Constitution or under uh, the statutes. You are interpreting the Constitution. And the uh, appropriate judicial role focuses on those considerations, tradition and history and practice, uh, as developed in the court's precedents. Um, and that's where I would start. Uh, in any case where the issue came up, whether or not a particular issue was presented uh, uh, under the due process clause. Uh, you begin with the precedents. Uh, you analyze them under principles of stare decisis. Precedents in this area, just like precedents in any other area, um, uh, and analyze them in light of those different factors. All the justices recognize that in this area, uh, uh, they are a you need to be especially careful about the source of the content that you're giving to the right uh, at issue because um, it is an area in which the danger of judges going beyond their appropriate limited authority is presented because of the nature of the uh, sources of authority. You're not construing the uh, text narrowly. You're not uh, looking at a particular statute with legislative history. Uh, all of the, the justices who recognize that it presents particular challenges. Right. Okay. Thank you. Now, as I said, there are a few things that I think many of us were pleasantly surprised about. There are some that we are troubled about. Um, I think you've answered some questions, but not answered a whole lot of others, and I'm going to get into that at another point. Uh, but I do find it very perplexing, um, and I'm not going to ask you to comment on this, your use of the so-called Ginsburg precedent. It seems you cite it when you don't want to answer something, but a few times here when Ginsburg had actually answered those specific questions, you didn't uh, want to answer them, and you ignored the precedent. And I don't think that's what precedents are, even in this more uh, unique role. So I hope you'll think about that overnight, because I'll get back to that tomorrow. The other thing that troubled me was the issue of civil rights. Many of us consider um, racism the nation's poison. De Tocqueville wrote about that since 1832. And we know you wrote these series of memos 20 to 25 years ago. Some of them are written in a tone that suggests you may have been insensitive to discrimination and hostile to equal rights. And I've talked to people uh, who might have felt just that. I, people have said that. So my question is not the substance, but do you regret the tone of some of these memos? Do you regret some of the inartful phrases you used in those memos, a reference to illegal amigos in one memo? Well, Senator, in, in that particular memo, uh, for example, it was a play on the uh, uh, standard practice of many politicians, including President Reagan. When you're ta he was talking to uh, a, a Hispanic audience, he would throw in some language in Spanish. Um, uh, there's, again, uh, uh, the memos were from me to 
Fred Fielding. Uh, I think Mr. Fielding always found the tone. I don't regret using that term. That's could you no, think well, that some I, people might find it offensive? It was meant to convey the notion again, as I described that when politicians speak to a particular audience in that language, is that offensive to the audience? Um, it was meant to convey that it was an issue concerning a particular uh, radio interview. Um, uh, you know, the, the tone was, I think, uh, generally appropriate for a memo from, the, from me to, to Mr. Fielding, and I know that he never suggested that it was anything other than I'd, I'd have to disagree with you, but we'll leave it at that. On a more substantive level, in light of where we are in 2005, admittedly we've progressed in civil rights since 1982, can you identify any policy or piece of legislation you argued for or supported in the Reagan era that you now believe went too far, that you now believe would not be good enough for America? I'm not challenging that you were representing somebody else then, as you've said to us before, but I'm asking, in hindsight, it's now 2005, you're almost double the years on this earth. Any of those policies that you think uh, now, using hindsight, shouldn't have been done? Well, Senator, I think some 80,000 pages have been released of memoranda that you I can just wrote. pick one or two. Well, I don't, I, you know, uh, I have not gone back and reevaluated all those policies. No. I do know, though, for example, um, in the area of civil rights, um, people have talked about memos I wrote about the administration's policy against busing or the administration's policy against quotas. Um, being against busing and being against quotas is not the same as being against civil rights. President Reagan was against busing. President Reagan was against quotas. But he was in favor of civil rights. And that was the administration position that I was advancing uh, in those memorandums. I understand you were advancing someone else's position. I was asking your own view if there were any regrets or changes in viewpoint of you personally, but uh, we'll leave it at that if you don't want to mention any. Okay, I'd like to go to the third leg of protection now and probably spend the rest of my time on this, uh, constitutional rights, the Commerce Clause. Now, just to briefly encapsulate, uh, you, you've said this, you agree with that the Constitution gives the Supreme Court the power to review and invalidate acts of Congress as was held two centuries ago in Marbury versus Madison. Yes. And you also said in questions, I guess, with Senator Kennedy uh, that you agree with the court's conclusion that segregation of children in public schools solely on the basis of race was unconstitutional, as in Brown. Okay, well, there's a, there's a third case uh, that I'd like to bring up, and it's the third leg of the framework in a lot of ways, and that's Wickard v. Filburn. Um, do you agree with the principle that the Congress has the power under the Commerce Clause to regulate activities that are purely local so long as Congress finds that the activities, quote, exert a substantial economic effect on interstate commerce? In other words, can Congress regulate commerce that doesn't involve an article traveling across state lines? Well, that's obviously the court's holding in Wickard against Filburn and reaffirmed recently uh, to a large extent in the race case. Um, but I would say that because it has come up again so recently in the race case that it's an area where I think it's inappropriate for me to comment on 
my personal view about whether it's correct or not. Um, that's unlike an issue under Marbury versus Madison or Brown versus Board of Education, which I don't think is likely to come up again before the court. This was just before the court last year. Um, and so uh, I should, I think, avoid commenting on whether I think it's correct or not. Um, this is not a recent case. This is Wickard v. Filburn. It's from 1942, I guess it was. It's a basic bedrock of our constitutional law, law after law, the civil rights laws of 1982 and uh, 65 and 65 uh, oh. that, um, that you talked about previously are based on the Commerce Clause, not necessarily on Wickard. No, not on Wickard. I understand, but so much of we, what we do is based on the Commerce Clause, and you know that the, um, there's a movement to greatly cut back on the Commerce Clause, led by Professor Epstein, uh, one of the judges, one of the justices that uh, the President said he wanted to appoint more justices like, Justice Thomas doesn't really believe in the holding of Wickard. And at a time with Hurricane Katrina uh, in the midst of the war on terror, where we need a strong national government, I find it, I'm not asking you, there's been a holding that's been accepted, and it was accepted in Raish as well by just about everybody, with a few exceptions I mentioned, that says you don't need the article to cross state lines to be regulatable under the Commerce Clause by the federal government. That seems to me to be as little in dispute as Griswold, as Brown, in terms of its broad acceptance, in terms of a term that you've used, in terms of the stability of our government. And I'm really surprised that you are unwilling to simply say, I'm not asking you for all the variations on the theme, but a fundamental bedrock, which is that Congress can regulate under the Commerce Clause things that don't Cross state lines is something that's in some doubt. Well, Senator, I think, you know, you said that, excuse me, you said that there would be unanimity just about or close to it on issue after issue. Um, obviously, there are dissents. I think Learned Hand in 1958 said he didn't agree with Marbury, but you said you had no problems going along with Marbury. Uh, in um, Brown, I suppose there are still some people who don't believe in Brown here and there. And here's a bedrock principle, admittedly under attack by what I would call an extreme few, that if we didn't unequivocally back it, not the variations on the theme, but the fundamental, the fundamental principle that Congress can regulate if it doesn't actually, the article doesn't actually cross, that Congress can regulate manufacturing because of its dramatic effect on interstate commerce. And you are unwilling to give Wickard the same status that you give Griswold, 
which was decided uh, 22 years later, or Brown, which was decided 12 years later. I mean, I know that Morrison and Lopez, but they don't challenge the fundamental precept. I didn't ask you if you fully support Wickard. I asked you if you support the proposition that under the Commerce Clause, you don't need the actual article crossing the state line. And you're not willing to say that that's settled law, that that's part of our established way of law. Well, Senator, all you have to do is look at the arguments, the briefs in the Raich case, where that was the issue that was argued, whether or not Wickard v. Filburn was still good law, whether or not Wickard v. Filburn should be applied in that situation. Nobody in recent years has been arguing whether Marbury v. Madison is good law. Nobody's been arguing whether Brown v. Board of Education is good law. They have been arguing whether Wickard v. Filburn is good law. Now, it was reaffirmed in the Raich case, and that is a precedent of the court, just like Wickard, that I would apply like any other precedent. I have no agenda to overturn it. I have no agenda to revisit it. It's a precedent of the court. But I do think it's a bit much to say that it's on the same plane as a precedent as Marbury v. Madison and Brown v. Board of Education. Or Griswold. Fact, or Griswold. The fact that it was just reconsidered and re-argued last year in the Raich case suggests that it's not that same type of case. And that's why I'm uncomfortable commenting on it. I have gone farther than many other nominees in talking about cases like Marbury, like Brown, like Griswold, uh, because of the, uh, uh, I thought it was uh, appropriate given the fact that those issues are not, in my view, likely to come before the court again. Here's an issue that was just before the court last year. So I can't say that it's unlikely to come before the court again, and therefore I think it falls in the category of cases in which I should tell you I recognize it as a precedent of the court. I have no agenda to overturn it or revisit it. Um, but beyond that, um, I think it's inappropriate to comment. Well, I would say that, um, well, let's go to a few more commerce case issues. Uh, again, I, I find it, I think Wickard is as accepted, is as part, not Wickard per se, but the idea that crossing state lines is not the only thing that you need for the Commerce Clause, that you don't have to, that you don't have to have the article cross state lines to be able to regulate it, is a bedrock of law after law after law that the federal government has passed. And your I'm not, and I'm not expressing, I'm not expressing any hostility to the proposition at all. All I'm telling you is that this is a case that was challenged, the application in the race case, last year. And to say that it's in the same category as Marbury uh, or, or Brown, um, I, I think is, is uh, right. But sir, inaccurate. Griswold came up in Lawrence, I don't know how many years ago that was. Um, the, you can make the argument that even somehow or other somebody challenged uh, precepts that flow from Marbury. I certainly and so perhaps I should have taken the, the approach Justice Scalia took. He wouldn't tell this committee whether Marbury was correctly decided. Glad you didn't do that. Well, and then that the reward for not doing that is to have additional cases that are very current in terms of the litigation before the court and the idea is, well, you said what you thought about Marbury, what do you think about the Raich case, which just reaffirmed Rickard against Filburn. They're two very different parameters. My approach has been a practical one. 
not an I ideological one, uh, but a practical one. So, but saying, just, I'm sorry, just explain to me why you can say it about Griswold, which I'm glad you did, but not about Wickard. Both of them have been litigated, tangentially at least, in the last five or six years. Well, Wickard was litigated directly uh, in the Raich case. Um, I don't think the issue in Griswold is likely to come before the court. Uh, it was unlike. It was unlike. Lawrence an outgrowth of Griswold in terms of what the right of privacy is to consenting adults in their bedroom. Well, that's one of the, the issues. But the difference between the issue that was presented in Griswold and its ramifications of the analysis, uh, uh, th those are two very different issues. Okay. Let me ask you just a little bit about the a little more on the Commerce Clause. We've all talked about the hapless toad and the need, uh, the fact that the toad didn't cross state lines didn't lead you to reject the Endangered Species Act under the Commerce Clause, but go seek another uh, possibility. So let me give you a couple of hypotheticals. Let's say we figured out that somebody um, could make botulism, or a lot of people could make botulism, a deadly, deadly poison. I think it's one of the seven poisons that the FBI looks for uh, in terms of doing danger to us, but they could make it with materials completely within the state. There was no material that crossed state lines. It's a little bit like the toad. Um, would you think that the federal government, if Congress so deigned, would have the ability to regulate that activity? Well, I, I think that sounds uh, a lot like the Raich case, where the court determined uh, the medical marijuana issue, even though uh, the regulation of marijuana as an illicit drug, uh, it had interstate impact, even if the medical provision of it did not. And so they were willing to look beyond and apply the Wickard case, which they reaffirmed the suitability, and conclude that that had a significant effect uh, on commerce, the regulation in general. You didn't have to look at the specific regulation. It seemed to me that that... Could you differentiate that from Viejo? Well, in Viejo, uh, you're dealing with a particular species and the, the difficulty. And again, it was what uh, another court had looked at, not the activity that was regulated, the interference with the species, but the activity that was taking place and having that impact, the building of a uh, housing development. Other courts, the Fifth Circuit and the GDF case, had, ex had argued that the approach of looking at the housing development rather than the particular activity uh, was inconsistent with the Supreme Court's decisions. And what I said is that if there's another basis on which to evaluate it, and there was, and the panel opinion noted, we don't have to reach these other grounds because of our conclusion, that we should focus on those other alternative grounds and see if we could base the, uh, and uphold the act on I those. Understand. Um, and my time is getting close to the end, so I, I'm not sure I agree with the, diff the large difference between Raich, Viejo, and the hypothetical that I gave. I think the Viejo case and the hypothetical I gave are limited. But let me just conclude with this. And You know, people wonder, what's all the fuss about? <laughs> and the answer is very simple. And that is that we could see if certain uh, viewpoints became majority viewpoints on the Supreme Court, the dismantling of the entire apparatus to protect our rights, 
through the narrowing of the Commerce Clause, which I said Justice Thomas already uh, agrees should be narrow, and we have a president who may have, he at least has one more nomination, um, who said he wants to appoint people in the mold of Thomas. Not only would the Endangered Species Act go, Title VII would go, OSHA would be gone, the Controlled Substances Act and prohibitions against personal possessions of biological weapons could all be const uh, unconstitutional. Justice Thomas's views on this issue are similar to others. He's against any substantive due process right under the 14th Amendment. He believes that the Establishment Clause would allow the establishment of state religions, of religions in the states. And so this is a, the, these are serious, serious things. He'd invalidate campaign finance laws. He'd eliminate affirmative action. Now, he's just one justice. But I think it's our job here in the Senate on both sides of the aisle if we feel that that kind of judicial philosophy, that kind of legal reasoning does not belong in the court to find out if nominees ascribe to it um, and if they do, uh, look at them warily. I'm not saying you do, as I said. Some of the things you've said I found pleasantly uh, surprising today. But I do think it's our job and I think we're going to continue to do it. Thank you very much, Senator Super. Senator Cornyn. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Judge Roberts, uh, I appreciate your uh, stamina hanging in there with us. Uh, I particularly appreciate your responding to the call to public service. And I want to say that uh, I would be remiss if we didn't express, if I didn't express what I know all members of the committee and Senate feel is the appreciation for your family. Senator Cornyn, before, before you proceed, there's been a request for a short break. So let's take one, uh, five, five minutes. Audible thanks you for listening to the Senate Judiciary Committee's hearings on the nomination of Judge John Roberts to be Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. Please visit audible.com for the best downloadable audiobooks, as well as subscriptions and podcasts of top audio programs, including Fresh Air, Car Talk, Scientific American, Harvard Business Review, and Charlie Rose. Audible hopes you have enjoyed this program.